0: Hey, Tim. What's up, Tim? What do you think is a bigger stretch for an alternate history story? A story about the Axis powers winning World War II? Or a story about the triumph of blockbuster video over the Netflix-Hulu alliance?
1: Tim, I think you're being super critical.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. My usual co-host Gabe would have joined us today, but he's stuck in the multiverse, a universe where cats have evolved to take over the planet. Uh, Turns out, though, basically that's the same as our universe, but Gabe wants to explore that space for a while, see how weird it can get. But there's no reason to worry, podcast listeners. I'm happy to be joined today by Tim Collins, longtime friend of the podcast, who joined us uh, last year for our episode on the British uh, TV movie Threads. He is a PhD candidate studying British nuclear history at King's College London. I'm happy he personally instigated this episode today. Thanks for joining us today, Tim.
1: No problem, Tim. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, this was... I kind of pressured you into doing this particular uh, subject today. I watched uh, The Man in the High Castle when it originally came out and quite enjoyed it. And I remembered there being quite a lot of nuclear content in it, but it was only when I went back and re-watched it that I realised just how much nuclear material, both good and bad, is in the show. So I apologise for the amount of work that I've inadvertently <laughs> given you by making you sit through two seasons Crammed full of nuclear nonsense.
0: <laughs> well, good. Well, so so people that may be unfamiliar with the Man in the High Castle, the, the what is the, the the basic premise of this?
1: So the basic premise is we're looking at uh, an alternative history. The show itself is uh, firstly based on uh, Philip K. Dick's original book uh, from uh, 1963. Uh, the book was then developed by Amazon for. I suppose you can still call it television if it's on, if it's on streaming. <laughs> The show's been running for two years, and it's the show itself is set in 1962 and depicts an alternative history where the Axis powers have won World War II. Mostly, the show is based in the former United States, and we get introduced to this world through a couple of different, in inverted commas, American characters. It's an it's an interesting uh, show because I think it fits in kind of this quite long established tradition of alternative history specifically focusing on the idea of what if the nazis win world war Two, but because it's also made by amazon and it's quite a prestige show for them there's so much money and like uh production design behind oh, it yeah. that it's it's quite a it's quite a prestige show for them and it's quite there's um a lot of effort i think has gone into this which makes it uh, at least in terms of its visual and everything, this this is a is a very glossy, well thought through production. Whether or not it works dramatically is <laughs> another matter. But at least they've given it a good effort.
0: Well, the production design in this show is the probably one of the best things about it. Mm. It's it, it looks well polished. Uh, the CGI, even for a uh, television show, looks pretty good mm. most of the time. Um, yeah. Especially the city landscapes that they create looks very. It looks nice. It, it, whatever the yeah. tricks they do, people like this show overall. I mean, it was one of those that Amazon put out a couple of different pilots and it said whoever watches um, a particular episode more, you know, gets the most views, then we'll make that one, which is a pretty cool way of, uh, it's almost like kickstarting, but not really kickstarting, kickstarting with eyeballs <laughs> and clicks through, uh, and it's available for streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, so if you want to check that out, I think that's how you can get it. You can also probably go to Blockbuster or... If those are around or a Best Buy and buy the DVDs, I think those are out too. But Metacritic really likes season one, 77 points out of 100. So that's that's not bad. A little lower in season two, around 62 points. Two Creative Arts Emmy Awards in 2016. Main title design, which their main title design is pretty good. It's this gorgeous. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's one of those that I, I do end up skipping over now because it's very long. So long. Uh, <laughs> Amazon doesn't have that feature where you can skip an intro like uh, Netflix does, which is pretty great. Um, but it's very beautiful. It's a um, version of what is it? Edelweiss. Edelweiss. My wife is informing me that it was written for sounding music. So she's—I trust her authority on this—and <laughs> then also one for cinematography for single camera show, and I will agree, it's very good uh, for the cinematography. Although here's where it gets a little awkward for this episode. Um, not to spoil our ratings for the end of the end of these of this particular episode but my wife and I were very excited to watch the show when it first got announced. I read the book in high school. It was one of my favorite books in high school. I told everybody I could find about this book and over and over and over again, even friends now when it was announced that it was going to be a pilot, I told them to check it out. We watched it and then midway through season 2 kind of got bored with the show. And stop watching. So I appreciate the fact that you're like, let's do an episode on this because it forced me to finally finish the episode. So that's great.
1: Yeah, well, that's kind of the opposite reaction. Well, I did read the book in high school as well. Didn't particularly enjoy the book. I loved it initially, the way the book starts. I quite enjoyed the characters and the world. I like science fiction. I find Philip K. Dick does premises very well. Very well, and yeah. And the actual writing can be quite alienating. And in this in particular, so I've read things subsequently that said, you know, he was he was writing high as a kite on drugs. He was writing using um, something we come to called the I Ching. So for me, characters should be making random decisions. And it, apparently it was because they were literally random decisions. And <laughs> that's how Philip K. Dick was writing the book. Um, so for me, I thought the TV show kind of um, took that great premise that he came up with and the characters. But I uh, kind of brought it up to date a bit.
0: I'll give, I'll give you that. That, was, I w- that might have been my reaction for the plot writing. I maybe had lower standards in high school yeah. for writing. But I do remember it being confusing yeah. why certain things were happening. But maybe I just, I was just so enthralled with the idea, the premise, the first time I'd, I'd sure. come across things like that.
1: Yeah, and I was surprised season two, got lower uh, review ratings than um, season one. I thought the writing actually got better, but it completely alienated you both to the point that you stopped watching. So I don't know. Maybe I need to reassess um, my view of television and what actually makes it a good story.
0: No, I think, I think it's one of those, this is a show that I'm happy. I recognize that someone else will really like it and I'm happy that it exists. I will say that Gabe, if he was on this episode, he had the same, he was in the same U-boat as me. Um, he, (laughs) He watched up to season two and then about the same place I did, uh, him and his wife were like, no, nah, okay, we're done with this now. So I think some people, but clearly this is a very popular show. It's series three, season three, is coming out some point in 2018. So I think this is a good time yep. to talk about this. And uh, with these kind of episode titles in season two, you can really get the new themes out of it. Episode titles like Escalation, Duck and Cover, Detonation, and Fallout.
1: Yeah, it's not subtle.
0: They <laughs> lay it on pretty <laughs> thick here. So let, let's get into this. Uh, so for this one... Instead of going through the full plot like we normally do for movies and sometimes for television episodes, um, it would take forever. I think that would be testing the patience of our listeners. When we did our Threads episode, that was like a three-hour long episode. I think for this one, what we can do is run through quickly maybe the broad strokes. And then I think because the way the nuke plot is laid out over season one and season two, just talking about that in in a particular order um, that we've devised here, I think it will tell the story of the show and also the nuke elements so i think we're, we're we have a good amount of things to talk about here
1: yeah it'll be a pretty spoilery discussion for all two seasons uh, well as you say you find it quite slow the actual show already take uh, takes place uh, the in-universe time i think adds up to three weeks and there's not a lot of plot really happens in that time i mean it's a it's quite a slow burn as a, sh- as a show um mm-hmm. it makes sense to do it thematically um and yeah we'll kind of cover all first two seasons so if you don't want it spoiled, go watch it first and come back.
0: <laughs> we we won't be upset. Just don't delete the episode. Just keep it on pause. And All right, so let's go through the broad strokes here. So as as Tim already mentioned, uh story is set in 1962, and the Allies, US, UK, Russia, France, were defeated by the Axis powers. Mostly Germany and Japan. No mention of Italy that I can see. No,
1: I wonder if Italy, does its usual tradition in World Wars and it changed sides. But in this case, that <laughs> worked out, so it ended up on the wrong side. Uh, but yeah, there's there's no there's mention. The world is purely divided between a Japanese-led sphere of influence and a German sphere of influence. And there's we see a couple of uh, world maps at various other points, and there's no other national boundaries really drawn on it other than... German territory, Japanese territory, and a kind of hinterland between the two. That's a uh, demilitarized buffer zone.
0: The neutral zone, I think is what they call certain parts That's of it, it, at least. yeah. Well, the neutral zone is, I think, the, for the United States, it's the Rockies. Uh, I mm. think in the book, the, it's a larger area, almost kind of goes towards Kansas a little bit more.
1: Yes, yeah, um, right down the middle. Right, think, yeah.
0: pretty much. So I think in the show, it's more just, just the Rockies area. And then I think parts of South America are also neutral territory. And then I think most of maybe Western Russia seems Mm. to be on the maps. Um, That big map we see at the end, the end of the season two. But the reason why this map gets created is because much like the episode that we did on Star Trek, uh, The City on the Edge of Forever, which I thought was funny, The City on the Edge of Forever, The Man in the High Castle, those kind of syntax (laughs) titles uh, end up with stories about what happens if the Nazis were to have successfully developed an atomic bomb. So in this one, they, they create one. They use it on Washington D.C. Uh, combined with a victory in Europe and a land invasion of the United States. This leads to a Nazi victory over the United States, and the world, like you said, is divided up for Germany. This is a really good time for them. They have this great period of successful achievements in science, in space. They talk about how they have a space program. They've already in the book they've already colonized, I think, like the moon, maybe even Mars, and now yeah, they're talking they're... about going to Venus
1: bringing fascism out to the cosmos, (laughs) Um, whereas in the series all we see are um, snippets, sort of indications of how this idea of uh, Germany being this great technological superpower and what if that had continued Mm -hmm. uh, with no restraints at all for 20 years and complete state control And so uh, all passenger jets in the Reich are actually supersonic Concorde-like aircraft in 1962. A lot of imagery, I think, is coming from science fiction books and artwork. And some of it comes, I think, actually from the Third Reich itself of... We see, we see Berlin at some point, and it's straight from the drawings of Albert Speer, who was Hitler's architect, and this idea of this great imperial city and a thousand-year Reich. And I think the producers do um, realize that, that image of, okay, well, what if the Nazis had one? What would Europe look like? What would they do to territories they occupy very well? So that kind of production design aspect, at least, is very convincing.
0: Yeah, I would recommend if people are interested in that side of the show, uh, one of these podcasts um, that I was on before – called Imaginary Worlds. Uh, it's a, a great podcast that Dale was really into. I think the, the, ha- the tagline is Imaginary Worlds and Why We Create Them um, and to Suspend Our Disbelief. It's a great series of, of really cool, in-depth discussions, usually around 20 minutes or so. Eric Malinsky, he interviews the production design team for Man the High Castle, and they talk about exactly how they go through this, how they have to um, find out what America would look like in the 1960s if this occupation were to take place. There'd be a lot of things that would be different, but there's also a sense of continuity. So one of my favorite little stories there is for one little tiny scene on a marquee in a movie theater, they wanted to have real actors' names on the Mm. screen, people that may have been successful in our timeline but in this world they're still good actors so they have to germany would want to have american actors play their nazi propaganda movies they, they ask so many different people like the estates of the different families like can we use your name in this nazi propaganda film and they go no and finally they get rock hudson and i think another person in their estate recognized the value of of this world here i think that's pretty cool and then you also see and then we talked about the architecture so remember that name spear We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the new plot, but there's it's not only is it a great time for Nazi uh, science, space, and industry, but also dome construction. There's a <laughs> yes. lot of giant domes, uh, which you talked about was right out of the – plans, the architecture plans for if what Berlin would look like if they when they won World War II. Uh, but it's not a great time for religious and racial minorities in German-occupied territories. A lot of people in the eastern part of the United States that were Jewish or they don't really talk a lot about racial minorities other than a few little examples here and there, but pretty much, as you would imagine, concentration camps, exterminations. Uh, but there is a resistance uh, in parts of the German-occupied territory and Japanese-occupied territory. So we talk a little bit, we'll talk a little bit about the characters that are involved, in that, but not only is this resistance happening, but there's also an uneasy peace between Japan and Germany. This slowly starts to develop. So much like in our world, here, United States and and France and UK teamed up with the Soviet Union to defeat Germany and Japan, uh, and then eventually a Cold War developed. Here in this world, there's Japan and Germany are not really happy with their current status, and there's a bunch of intrigues and plots here. And then add on top of that. The Fewer is pretty old at this point. He's getting kind of senile. He has some 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 health defects, and there's a power struggle to replace him. Also, because you mentioned, this is the Philip K. Dick story. There's some science fiction elements, and the show really leans heavily into this uh, as it gets further along. There's a multiverse. So people are jumping back and forth between the timeline where Germany and Japan won World War II, and then one where they didn't. And they kind of can go back and forth, and that's where the plot... Um, kind of comes through. So why don't you, you want to talk a little bit about like the role of the multiverse and, and these film reels that people are finding, because I think that's important to, before we get into the plot stuff here.
1: It's an interesting change from the book. And I think perhaps one necessitated by the fact that this is a television show rather than something that you're, you're reading. Or maybe just because modern styles have changed. So so the show hints at this initially, but then it gets pretty explicit as as we move on. So yes, there is the idea of, of a multiverse. So there are many different versions of the world in which multiple versions of history are playing out simultaneously. And one way that the characters discover this is because film reels, like li- literal just you know, tins of news footage, keep somehow showing up in the Nazi world, depicting what happened in our real timeline so we discover this i think in the very first scene where um there's a character in the uh, japanese occupied california um, pacific states of california called uh, juliana crane and she bumps into her sister who's fleeing for her life and she passes juliana uh, a film right before her sister is shot and so juliana watches this and she sees footage that's from our world of an allied victory over the over nazi germany and japan so it presents to her a world that she could never even imagine one where there's kind of hope and the good guys won, as she sees it
0: i think it's like the famous v-day uh, the sailor with his lady friend the dip and the kiss
1: in Times square i think or something like that and um so as the show goes on these elements uh become uh more heavily introduced to the show so in the original book i think it's interesting the the plot was driven by the idea of okay, okay the Germany and Japan have have won uh, World War Two, but somewhere in America, there is a man called the man in the high castle who writes an alternative history book, imagining what would have happened had the Allies won World War Two. So we have here an alternate history being written in an alternate history. It's very <laughs> meta. So in the book, the characters go in search for the man who has written this book. Um, I think it's called uh, The Grasshopper Lies Heavy. Mm-hmm. The book kind of gives people hope and the ability to imagine what a better world might have been had only the allies won. But obviously that's not terribly visual. So in the TV show, rather than a book, they have these magic film reels start appearing somehow into this horrible version of history. The kind of plot is driven by the search for these films and what it does to the characters. And the kind of sci-fi elements get heavier and heavier as we go on through the show. And actually there's a, um, a teaser just came out for season three which confirms how people can move between worlds and the Nazi government discovers this. So I don't know if this is going to lead to some, the Nazis are going to invade our world or something. But anyway, it's, it gets pretty heavily sci-fi uh, as the series goes along. Yeah, much more than the book does. So the man in the high castle of the title is this kind of Wizard of Oz type figure yeah, played um, <laughs>
0: great played great by Stephen root milton from from office space it's
1: pretty great Such a good actor he's this kind of eccentric quite erratic character but seems faintly mystical as well he seems to have some kind of understanding of the fact that there are all these multiple worlds and the power of these films and he's it's not just our world and the evil world He it seems like there's multiple versions of history mm-hmm. playing out simultaneously um so we do meet him the show remind me at times of Lost and kind of the kind of more trippy sci-fi elements, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: I think it explains itself a lot better than Lost did. And it doesn't rely. It, it uses the sci-fi to set up the premise and for some aspects of plot, but mostly it's just characters getting on with living in this horrible dystopian world in which the Nazis in Japan have, have won World War II. Well,
0: those are fighting words because I'm a, I'm a pretty heavy Lost offender, <laughs> um, but we'll get, we'll get into that later <laughs> on. We're going to do a Lost episode at some point because there's some there's some big nuke stuff in there, but as as you mentioned about some of the different characters that can go back and forth between our our timeline. I'm going to call it our timeline, I guess. In the book, prime. yeah, <laughs> in, prime in, and evil. In, no. Well, in the book is um, as you know the. The world that's in the alternate history in the in the Grasshopper Lies Heavy isn't exactly our timeline. In that one, I think it's like the UK and the United States are the ones in locked in the Cold War. I think in that in that world, the Soviet Union also collapsed. So in both in both the yeah. Man of the High Castle and the Grasshopper Lies Heavy story within a story, poor Soviet Union just can't catch a break.
1: No, whereas uh, the British Empire yeah, apparently emerges triumphant from World War Two. Uh, economically strong, and gets into competition with the United States and has a Cold War, whereas in reality, the British Empire limped out of World War II and pretty much quickly disintegrated. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, want, I want to see that version, <laughs> just, out of, just out of curiosity, because I, I study Britain's decline in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it it is such a case of decline and everything falling apart that it's kind of depressing to read about uh-huh. sometimes. I, also, I want to see the alternative history. Yeah.
0: But you mentioned the characters that will go back and forth. Um, one of the, the cool things about this show that I'll give it credit for is there are a good number of small part actors and characters in the story that do a really good job of world building. So one of the ones um, is the trade minister uh, of Japan. Who he, So in San Francisco, he's there. He's the trade minister. He's a, one of the main characters of the show. Played great. I think his name is uh, Kerry Kagawa. He plays, if you remember, if you happen to watch the Mortal Kombat movie from the 90s, he plays uh, Shang Tsung. <laughs> But he's, he's a great actor. He was also, I think, in Pearl Harbor. This is a better role for him. His assistant is one of these people who we find out goes back and forth between the worlds. He was originally living in uh, Nagasaki.
2: Where are you from, Japan? Nagasaki. Ah, beautiful city. Yes.
0: It is. Uh, he was there when the bomb took place. And you can see scars and burn marks on his body. And he likes to live in this world because his family's still here.
1: We watched the show and obviously there's this kind of morbid fascination about imagining what would have happened had the Nazis and uh, the Japanese Empire won World War II. And for us, it's, this, it's, the, it's the darkest timeline. It's the most evil version yeah. of history. But for that character... Um, for somebody who's a hibakusha is it's the idea of actually for him this would be the ideal timeline because you know they talk about how beautiful a city Nagasaki is and then in, in this alternate version it still is and his yeah I should say his family are alive and everything it's interesting it's it's a tiny incidental moment I think the character only has a couple of scenes in a few episodes but you're right it has lots of nice little incidental details all the way through that kind of to remind you as to um, the approach that we're taking to history and how the characters in this world actually view their own environment.
0: That's one of the best things the show does is it presents things that we might be comfortable with an assumption like, oh, this is this is the, you're right. This is the worst s- timeline that we can imagine. But it's it's all about perspective for a lot of these characters, especially the character of John Smith, who was an American Military, uh, I seem like he was higher up in leadership because he was visiting the Pentagon on the day that the uh, bomb went off in in Washington, D.C. And when that happens, he adapts and he basically goes full on board. I'm going to meet a leader in this new Nazi United States. He raises his family in this world. Even though he's an American, he's essentially the ideal version of a Nazi leader, military
1: leader. He's the best character in the show for me. Oh, by far. One of probably the two main characters. I think it's it's um Ubergruppenführer John Smith. Mm-hmm. And um, I apologize in advance for any comedy German accents. I can't help it when <laughs> I want to when I say Ubergruppenführer. I just want to kind of slip into <laughs> kind of really bad farce. He's probably one of the main characters, if not the main character. He's I think he's certainly the breakout star. Um, but there's no disputing the fact that this is died dyed-in-the-wool fully committed Nazi. He's the head of the SS in America. He is in SS uniform for pretty much the whole show. It's full black leather, evil Hugo Boss styling. Um, there's no getting around the fact that he is a committed Nazi. And yet he's a really interesting, compelling character. And I think a lot of that might be because of the... Um, he's played by Rufus Sewell. He was a very good uh, British actor. Another British actor stealing all the of the American jobs. <laughs> they might recognize him from, I think he pops up in the first season of, of Victoria. He makes you not get behind the character because you don't want to get behind a Nazi at any point, but you, you can definitely understand his point of view. I, I find myself, I didn't want him to succeed, but I wanted him and his family to kind of be okay. So you're trying to reconcile the, you know, your beliefs that, well, all Nazis are obviously bad. Um, I think one of the strengths of the show is showing how society might adapt under the conditions of a foreign power occupying mm-hmm. uh, an entire country and co-opting your way of life. And these were things that obviously were found in real life when Nazi Germany did occupy uh, countries like France and Poland and Belgium, and life had to go on. And you had some people who would resist and some people who would collaborate and for a lot of people normal life goes on and and aspects of normal life become subverted to this kind of horrible regime and i think what the show does really well through that character and lots of the incidental characters around him and his family like his wife his wife's friends is show how these normal uh, aspects of society might become perverted but essentially mm. carry on in, in ways that we would recognize this is basically the rufus sewell show i think if there's a criticism of it for me, yeah. I think if you take that character out, the show doesn't really work very well.
0: Right, no, you put him on the High Castle. He's really the person that I, if I watch the show, it's for that story. he well, He's a character. I mean, he. I think the point of the character is to show that anyone can this could happen to anybody. It's not some perverse like this is crazy, right? It's no, this is this is normal. And I think that's reflected in the choice for his name, John Smith. It's the most generic name possible. It's just saying this could be anybody. It's not like, uh, you know, Freddie Macare or someone like a, you know, John Matrix or something crazy like that. It's John Smith.
1: There's some hilarious juxtaposition against the Germanicness of Uben Gruppenfuhrer, John Smith. It's when he says it, when the characters say it, or at some point um, Reinhard Heydrich turns up with a a very camp German accent, and Mm -hmm. when German characters start saying his name with the rank... There's there's a really weird juxtaposition where I don't know if we're meant to laugh, but I can't help. Every time they say his name with full title, I I giggled.
0: (laughs) One thing I couldn't figure out, too, is why certain points in the show, they use actual German with subtitles for English subtitles for Germanic effect. And then other times it's. German characters speaking to German characters in English. They all, they've all changed it up a lot. I couldn't figure out
1: what it it's was. It's a bit Star Wars. We'll just use whatever language. Right. Sometimes we'll speak an ADA language, but you'll reply in English, and we'll all understand each other, and we'll all be fine.
0: Right. We The Wookiee can understand it, uh, basic, but we can't <laughs> exactly. do it the other way around. Well, this is good. So this is a good thing, way of, of setting up the nuke discussion. I think people who are listening to this that maybe just want to hear us talk about nuke stuff that maybe didn't want to watch the show— I think they got the sense here of what we're going to be going through. So I think we'll get super critical right now. There are six major nuclear plot points and I won't take credit for this. These are largely an outline uh, points that you came up with, but I'll go through them quickly here in case people want to jump to this section in the podcast and we'll talk about the visual elements you know what the bomb looks like when it goes off there's one main scene in the show where a nuclear bomb goes off we'll talk about the usual uh, what they get right what they get wrong then we'll talk about the role of nuclear weapons in the German World War 2 victory in the man in the high castle We'll talk about this nuclear espionage plot. We'll talk about the German nuclear war plans, because at the end of season two, Germany decides, you know, we're going to take care of Japan now. There's a Japanese nuclear program. So Japan's trying to build a weapon in secret to be able to uh, balance out the nuclear monopoly of the German nuclear program. And finally, we'll get into nuclear deterrence, because surprise, kind of out of nowhere, mutually assured destruction conversations start to take place in the final episode. So I think that's pretty fascinating. So let's go through these point by point. First, with the visual elements, the nukes on the small screen or whatever device you happen to be streaming on. There's the opening credits of the show. We talked about how great those were. The Emmy Award-winning opening credits has some pretty good bomb visual work there. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things that are in those opening credits?
1: Yeah, I think it's a good way to introduce you to kind of the world um, because you you start to I think it. Well, they, they I think they change it a little bit for season two. I think they—they they add um, a couple more images from Washington. Mm. But uh, generally, so the the opening credits are a combination of a, a world map, so uh, giving you a, a sense of uh, what this Nazi and Japan-dominated world looks like, with an occupied United States and a neutral zone down the Rockies. We get scenes of uh, what looks like newsreels of uh, World War II, but actually, it's the wrong side is winning. Mm. Uh, it's set over this kind of, as you say, this um, uh, well, a very Germanic song, uh, Edelweiss, but it's a kind of very slow tempo and quite nice and soothing if it weren't set to such <laughs> horrible imagery. And as part of that, the images we see um, are broken and devastated uh, Washington, D.C., which has been hit with an atomic weapon. And this was uh, so the show was explaining, I think implicitly in its own credits, how did we end up in this world? The German Reich has obtained a nuclear weapon, has attacked the United States destroyed Washington. And now we're jumping 20 years later.
0: Yeah. We see the, the, the capital, the, the Capitol building, the work, the Senate and the House are in the United States. We see the dome kind of there, but it's, it's the rotunda part of it is missing. Almost looks a lot like from the Fallout video game series, what the Capitol looks uh, like. awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, and then I, one of my favorite things is you have to show the Washington Monument, but the Washington Monument cannot have been knocked over because then you won't know that it's the Washington Monument, so we're just going to have parts of the Washington Monument missing, which is kind of a th- an interesting thing here because I live in, in Washington, D.C. area, and we'd love to go to the Washington Monument. The last couple of, of years it's been closed there was one earthquake and then it caused damage so it shut down for a little while and it's in the elevator breaks, so it's like constantly in the last years maybe there's only been a couple of months where it's been open so this thing is pretty brittle <laughs>
1: i mean it seems no, like it makes it, sense it can it can withstand nuclear bombs but not tourists That makes perfect sense not at
0: all um but yeah so much like in the fallout video game series it, it parts of it are missing like the plaster has fallen off or the bricks and everything but yeah. it's still it's still standing so you know where it is it seems like the white house is gone it's unclear kind of where the bomb goes off in DC because these two things are still there. But we'll get into that a little bit. But So then there's also the main scene is episode 10, season 2. The episode's called Fallout, uh, which is great because really the it's a cold open. There aren't a lot of cold opens in this show. Usually no. it's credit and then story. This one, it's cold open December 11th, 1945. Very early in the morning or late at night, it seems like uh, Helen, who is the wife of John Smith, uh, great character, great actress for that show, too. I uh, want to make sure we can hear her do. Her and John Smith come in. He's wearing a U.S. military uniform. He's like, we're, we're late, but I'll go into the Pentagon in the morning. It seems like he's in rural Virginia, maybe. You're supposed to see Washington, D.C. off in the distance. And this is before yes, kind it's of tall of Standing either
1: side of a window, they're almost literally framing it. And in the distance is a hint of a sunrise or a sunset. And I think you can just about make out the top of the Capitol building.
2: You were supposed to be there hours ago. Ah, uh, it's fine. I'll just go straight to the Pentagon in the morning. No, we're slowing you down. Oh, come on, mind. There's my little baby. Mm-hmm. Kicking up a storm. I'm pretty sure it's a he. Sean.
0: flash of light everything turns white a couple seconds later big boom and with tv cgi quality uh, you see the mushroom cloud start to rise up the wife asks what happened what is that which i joked at first i was like what do you mean you, what is this it's an atomic bomb but then this, this would have been the first time a bomb ever went off at least in terms of an act of war we were not sure if the germans tested the weapon first maybe this was a, um, a uranium bomb and they felt pretty comfortable not testing it Pre-open group. John Smith says, "I think the Nazis just hit Washington." I love my favorite part here is there's a bunch of air raid sirens that go off after the bomb goes off, Afterwards. and I'm like, "Yeah, thanks for the heads up, there, guys.
1: Appreciate
0: appreciate that." Yes,
1: shutting the stable door after the horse has been nuked. <laughs> it's not really gonna do much good. Uh,
0: so let's let's nitpick this a little bit. So the detonation that goes off. What do we, what did you think about some of the, the finer points of of the imagery here?
1: So I think the scene itself is really good. So the, yes, the show has waited until I think it's the final episode of the second season where a lot of nuclear points are coming together in terms of plot points. So I think dramatically it's very effective. I think the visuals are very well done. It's so well framed and shot and it's interesting having this. So we've got to know John Smith as this, the head Nazi and a very capable and um, a very intimidating figure. And then we see him in uh, U.S. military uniform and he's dripping in in medals and uh, mission ribbons, and then there's this sudden flash, and we kind of see the moment where their world ends, and now we get to the world that we've actually seen for the last two seasons. The visuals of it are very well done. It's it's all very pretty. It uses, I think, a lot of the vernacular of nuclear weapons that we're now accustomed Mm -hmm. to. I think the audience implicitly expects this is what a nuclear attack on a city would look like.
0: Flash, mushroom cloud, wait a couple seconds, big boom.
1: Exactly, and then light fades, and you have this kind of scene of the mushroom cloud starting to rise up into the air, um, and that's all very effective in terms of the accuracy. Uh, I can't really give it much more. Like, I, I don't know what what kind of rating we can give this if there's any like less than zero, because <laughs> oh. there are so many points of this where it, I was I was. I mean, I'm not a physics guy. I'm mostly like a history and strategy guy. But even I know this isn't how nuclear weapons work.
0: All right, let's get through this because I think I might have a better rating <laughs> for this than you do. We're yeah. a little bit I higher. Am. So let's get through the certain points here. I I, I noticed you wrote down. Detonation, blast, heat fire, all that stuff. So why don't we why don't we go through some of these points and see what you what's your problems sure. with this?
1: So imagine there's this big landscape window. John Smith and Helen are standing either side of it. And so we're we're looking right out the window and we see the nuclear explosion go off. So immediately we see the flash. Both characters look immediately at the flash, <laughs> which firstly okay, so as you say, maybe the nuclear explosion, they've never seen nuclear weapons before. They don't know that's What you're not meant to do. Obviously the first effect of a nuclear explosion is an incredible amount of heat and that incredible explosion of light. Uh, Even if you're not so close as you're going to be burned by that don't look directly at the sun don't look directly (laughs) at that explosion or you will burn your eyes but they're apparently both absolutely fine and they look, a sustained look at this explosion. Mm -hmm. So, Firstly they're fine with that. Then the um, shockwave reached them. There's like a very small rumble which hits them in about two to three seconds. So I think work. I, I didn't do the math but And you'd have to be pretty close to the source of the explosion to have the shockwave hit you two to three seconds after the light has hit you. Adam, they look closer than the visuals. They appear to be closer than the visuals make it look. The blast then hits, but it it literally only rattles the window. So it's a powerful enough blast to level Washington to destroy most landmarks, except the two that we need for the credits. (laughs) Um, But it's not enough to even break... The Windows in Their House, which if anyone has ever read anything about um, so um Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's actually made me reread. I have uh, a book, uh, Hiroshima by uh, John Hersey, which oh. uh, was, I know uh, it's not an easy read. Uh, it's like six survivor accounts yeah. of, uh, uh, of Hiroshima and it details what an actual nuclear explosion on a city is like it is not like it appears in this tv show but you know the blast at the very least is going to blow out windows it's going to knock out roofs for a while they appear to be in a wooden structure that's going to get leveled and then there's also there's no heat or fire effects which is one of the you know the most devastating it's it's often underplayed aspect of of nuclear weapons but it's not just the the blast that knocks down cities it's the firestorm that will follow it so if you're close enough to a nuclear explosion that the blast will hit you in two to three seconds you're, at the very least, going to be blinded. You're almost certainly going to be incinerated. So in terms of the physics of this whole scene, while it's all very dramatically interesting and looks beautiful, but they're apparently blast-proof, heat-proof. <laughs> Helen, is, Helen is eight months pregnant, but there's no like radiological damage. They are absolutely fine. Uh, being this close to the, uh, the the hypocenter of a nuclear explosion. Well,
0: I, I think the issue is you just don't know how well homes were built back in the 1940s in oh, this sure. area. I'm someone who's currently living in a 1940s home, almost kind of around where they would have that bomb would have maybe gone off. I think I'm a little closer than they are. And I, I joked about this when we did our Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull episode. I asked my home inspector, because he said these homes are, this can withstand earthquakes and all this stuff. And I asked if, what if a bomb went off on the Pentagon? He said, I don't, that's outside of my pay grade, sir. Um, <laughs> so so I'll, so I'll go through what I think, uh, I have a little bit of a different perspective on this. So I, I pulled up Nuke Map, our, our trusty tool, uh, created by Alex Wellerstein, um, where you can plug and play what you... Uh, what kind of detonation you want, where you want it, all that stuff. And you can see what the effects are based on the the computer modeling uh, that we have based on nuclear tests and also dropping two of these things on cities. I made a couple of assumptions here. An airburst, I assume, is what you normally would use against a, a civilian non-hardened target, although it's not clear because the mushroom cloud, to me, looks a lot like a ground burst. Mm. Than it would a an airburst. Airburst tends to be like larger sp- spheres of explosion. This seemed to be a, a ground burst with a mushroom cloud, kind of as if you would have a nuclear bomb. Or a test device on a tower.
1: Yeah, I think it's because we're in real life have seen footage of nuclear tests and then that's replicated in films. I think the producers or whoever's responsible for the visual effects say, Oh, that's what a nuclear explosion looks like. Yep. And even if you did it accurately, then the audience would go, Well, that's not right. Why isn't it that recognizable?
0: Terminator 2 did a really good job with yeah. an airburst. That was what a bomb would look like when it went over a city. This one, because of the visual, it just I don't you're right, I don't think it would really look right. So I assume though, an airburst So I guess that would have been probably dropped from an airplane, I would assume, Mm -hmm. uh, some sort of uh, German uh, bomber, uh, heavy bomber. Uh, I assumed the yield to be the same as—not the Hiroshima bomb, because it seemed a little bit bigger. So I assumed the 20 kiloton bomb that was used on uh, Nagasaki, and then the aim point just— because I tried to make this work, give the benefit of the doubt, I put the aim point as just north of the White House. Like they aimed for it and they just kind of missed it, but it's yep. still within the range. So here's what here's what Nuke Map says. There will be a fireball of 660 feet in, uh, I believe that's the, the the radius, how far out it would go. For all of these other ones, I converted them to kilometers for some reason, feet. I forgot that for the fireball. But it's it's not huge. It's a fireball mm. that would be like these, these bombs have nothing compared to compare them to to the modern megaton, you know, hundreds of kiloton style bombs that we have today. Um, so 660 feet is really where the fireball would expand out to. There'd be other effects, as you mentioned, because the, the air blast for the degree, degree of 20 PSI, This is the level that would knock over most concrete buildings. Only extends out to be about 2,500 feet or 0.76 kilometers. Uh, So that's the thing that I think that would knock over heavy structures, concrete Mm. buildings. Um, The Washington Monument and the the Capitol building are actually outside of this range. If you put the aim point just north of the White House, and I'm not talking very far north, just uh, like a block or two north of the White House.
1: Yeah, gravity bomb, not terribly accurate.
0: Right. Exactly. Five PSI level air blast would knock over residential buildings. This extends out to 1.07 miles or 1.72 kilometers. So the Washington Monument here would be damaged, maybe knocked over. I'd say more likely that parts of it would be destroyed, especially the top of it. But the Capitol building is still mostly okay. It's kind of just starting to get into that range. And then one PSI where windows get knocked out and damage is a more unpredictable, that extends out to two point eight miles or four point six kilometers. I would say that maybe in this world the Capitol building probably could have survived, quote unquote. Like so I think in terms of the windows being broken out, it really is hard to tell how far away they are yeah. from. I mean, think that's a
1: problem. It is impossible to judge the distance and I don't think the visual effects team even I know decide. It's just it's determined by the needs of imagery rather than you know what uh, what what the physics of a nuclear explosion are.
0: It, it, so it seems like, I, I agree with you 100%, though, about the two to three second. It would probably yeah, be longer. That's the, that's the
1: bit that threw me. It's, the, it was, it's literally, it's click your fingers, and then the shockwaves hit. And then that's the bit that made me think, you're very close to this. And you would feel the shockwave
0: before any sort of a rumble. Like the rumble right. that comes from kinetic energy being forced down, and then causing earthquake-like tremors.
1: The whole building does shake around them at the exact same time it hits them.
0: It would be, yeah, it would be initial heat, then it would be shockwave, then it would be like the huge air blast that kind of comes through and pushes the wave. But I think it's hard to tell. It's hard to make a real call on this because it's unclear about how far away they are. Because the mushroom cloud looks fairly small off in the yeah. distance when you compare it to it. So for me, I, I give my rating for this because I'm starting to do a little rating system here for no real reason. <laughs> um, there's one fun aspect that I love to talk about. I love to talk about Wilson clouds or condensation clouds because this is a thing that's so... It's an iconic part of um, what we think a nuclear mushroom cloud would look like, but it's not always something that happens. So when we test bombs out in the Pacific Ocean back in the day... Bikini Atoll, which is one of the, the main ones that you hear a lot in the, in the show, uh, what happens is, is that when, again, I'm not a physicist or a scientist either, I just play one on a podcast, but what happens is, is that in areas where there's a lot of humidity out in the Pacific Ocean, which the DC metro area has a lot, but maybe not as much in December, when the shock wave pushes away, when the detonation happens, it pushes away air in the surrounding area, and it makes the air that's immediately around where that wave pushed out air particles, makes it less dense. And the air particles that are left usually are some sort of water vapor or water particles. The heat from the explosion causes those water particles to vaporize and become, for a very short amount of time, essentially condensation like a cloud. And then as the shock wave continues to expand out, you get these huge swarts of just clouds that get created for a short amount of time. And eventually the heat from the explosion and the shock wave itself will dissipate the cloud vapor. But this is one of those things you see a lot in tests for the Pacific, as I mentioned but not so much in the desert. So when we we do aerial tests in in Nevada, uh, which I'm going to, in a month from now, I'm going to visit the former test site out in Las Vegas um, for part of a fun little tourist trip. You don't see those tests producing condensation clouds very much. The humidity is very low in dc It humidity is always relatively high but in december it's usually relatively low so this is one of those things where it's like okay. i could see a world where it would be humid enough to create wilson clouds or condensation clouds but i'm also not willing to say that that would definitely happen because this is you see this gigantic condensation cloud maybe and the thing too is maybe in the morning it's a little more humid than it would be in the in the later part of the day but
1: i just thought that was kind of fun Well, it's an interesting shibboleth kind of for for accuracy of uh, nuclear explosions on TV and films, Uh, whether or not they
0: do it. It also looks visually more like what you would see in a college dorm room. Uh, The poster of an atomic bomb going off in the Pacific has a giant condensation cloud. So visually, it's that shorthand people get. If my usual co-host Gabe here would be here, uh, he's also a pilot. He would tell me the same condition of Wilson clouds, condensation clouds, gets created on the wing of an airplane uh, when the wing causes the air above it to become less dense and it produces a similar effect. If I wanted to, to do a little bit of a, a quick rating system here, so my new rating system is grading these pretty much an arbitrary scale, uh, whether or not the bomb fizzled out as a dud, the, the imagery of it, whether it was a low-yield good attempt, or whether it went thermonuclear in terms of its accuracy, I would say for me this is a, a low-yield good attempt. I think that there's enough visually interesting cues there, but it's not that next step. It's probably the lowest uh, scale of that middle range. But I don't know what you sound like. You're more of a, of oh, a no, I think
1: you, you, I think you talked me off a bit there. But, but my, my issue was it was the, um, the the time between the Flash and the shockwave hitting them. And they're giving me a sense of you're near enough right under it. Um, yeah. And they seem to be an, an incredibly survivable house and a really strong window. Um, but uh, all the rest of it, I, I quite enjoy it. Not just the imagery. There's, a, there's another thing see we haven't talked about where you briefly see some photographs um, of post-attack Washington.
2: Right.
1: And that gives more details than that brief shot in the credits. And those photographs we see uh, directly echo actual photographs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki where you see the same things of you know survivors with the pattern of their clothes burned into their skin, the scorch mark shadows. You see... The pattern of destruction radiating outwards, uh, even though they're concrete buildings, the immediate vicinity is destroyed. Um, there's an interesting historical footnote there of how in the early Cold War, when uh, the U.S. government was worried about... Um, the people being so terrified by nuclear explosions that they'd stop supporting deterrence. So the the government said, "Well, mm-hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki were destroyed because these were largely wood buildings." And they showed pictures where concrete buildings survived, including what was become the uh, um, I think it's called the the um, was it the uh, Hiroshima Peace Monument? Oh, it was a large uh structure with a steel and concrete dome dome mm-hmm. and the concrete was blown away but the building and the dome steel construction survived largely and they left that uh, they've left that standing as a monument and it looks a lot like the Capitol building does in this so i think in terms of the attention detail when they do the photographs and like they you know the really fine detail look that's all really nice nuclear nerdy stuff that i really appreciated and I like the imagery of the scene of this flashback. It was just the um, I, I, if if I could tell the distance, <laughs> I would, it would have been slightly less annoyed. But um, but no, I think you talked you talk me up. I think they've actually okay, they've done a better job than I gave them credit for initially.
2: Well,
0: if they said like, oh, I need to get to the Pentagon in the morning, which will take me this long because I am, <laughs> exactly. I am this far away from it.
1: It's like a GCSE bath thing. If I travel at 60 miles an hour, <laughs> for how long will it take me? That's, that's, that's the only detail I needed.
0: And the, the wife will be like, I love staying in Fairfax, Virginia, um, <laughs> or something like that. But I'm glad you also brought up the idea of, of using Hiroshima as a judgment point of here's what a nuclear bomb can do. because. I think it's one of those things people will say, well look, Hiroshima and Nagasaki survived. They they're they're flourishing today and people were able to survive, so nuclear weapons won't be that bad if they're used on a larger scale. It'll be bad, but you know, it's you can you know inch it out, we can survive. But the types of weapons and the yield and all of those
1: things are just non-comparable today. Atomic era, but pre-thermonuclear era is a really interesting point where it's governments and militaries trying to, which are quite conservative institutions anyway, trying to figure out the implications of these weapons and also the policy implications and Britain and America trying to just reassure their public and get support for this new policy of deterrence on which they They're now basing their whole national security strategies. And so you want nuclear weapons to be sufficiently terrifying to stop a war, but not so terrifying as to paralyze you in public with fear. And there's this interesting, uh, especially the years of American nuclear monopoly, but also before Sputnik and before mutual vulnerability, where America is using civil defense, particularly America, but not just them, are using civil defense and footage of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and trying to say uh, our cities will survive better, Um, But nuclear weapons are also so incredibly destructive that the enemy will be destroyed. And it's trying to square that circle. I think it's a really interesting brief period before the thermonuclear area came along. And I say yields, this grew up so much that there's no disputing the way to survive a nuclear explosion in the city is not to be in the city. And then we get to threads and the horrible depiction of what that looks like. But we will not go back to that. We we, we did that podcast. That's done. But so what
0: I'll say about my Threads stuff is, is that my uh, Blu-ray copy of Threads, because for the longest time it wasn't really even on DVD. I think we watched it on Vimeo um, or some online streaming service. (laughs) (laughs) There is now a special limited edition Blu-ray that got released last couple of weeks. A large part of it, I would not pretend like it was R podcast that created that but a couple months ago there was this great tweet along people would watch threads at the exact same time and they would tweet about it i remember you think you participated in this
1: yeah so that was organized by a journalist called julie mcdowell or mcdowell northern Irish people we pronounce the name differently (laughs) she's a journalist she writes a lot about uh nuclear weapons and in particular nuclear culture always really interesting really fascinating lots of looks at bunkers and architecture and uh, like legacy of Cold War heritage. But um, yeah, she did a really great – she organized a couple of those kind of uh, Twitter uh, – tweetalons of different films. I think she organized one for When the Wind Blows Soon, which will probably have been finished by the time this podcast comes out. But it was a really interesting thing of just seeing people sharing their experiences of that film and everyone seemed to remember the first time they watched it and how much they were horrified and that kind of thing.
0: Well, that was a good one. So I think that plus the fact that we're living in this age where – Because of North Korea and and leadership in various countries that have nuclear weapons, there's a sense of of anxiety that's starting to return. And Threads was a perfect example of of just depicting that anxiety. So I'm glad that that got re released so people have access to it. I'm tempted to watch it to see what the quality of that movie is, but (laughs) I'm also, I may just watch the special features because there's a bunch of really good special features. Um, so maybe you and I can do a little uh, side episode where we just watch the special <laughs> features and
1: yeah, I'm I'm good on the film, but yeah. uh, watch the special features.
0: So let's move on to the next thing here. So this the next point we spent a lot on on the the vermicilitude of what the bomb looked like, but let's get into what the bomb meant for the story. Let's talk about the role of nuclear weapons in the victory of Germany in World War II in this story and kind of what it meant for their age of nuclear monopoly and kind of the benefits that it gave them security-wise, but also maybe gave them some vulnerability in the sense that other people are not happy living in that world where there's only one nuclear power. You want to run through maybe what the uh, in-universe explanation for why this worked?
1: So I've always kind of had a a weird fascination with alternate histories. So imagining what if I loved it in school, I loved it from a historical point of view, but I also love it in fiction. And you start noticing there's a really weird trend of Nazis winning World War II is obviously a popular one. But within that, there's like a subgenre of Nazis getting nuclear weapons and therefore winning World War II. It seems mm-hmm. it's such a common trope. It's it's it might be part McGuffin, you know, part of that thing from film of like a magic thing that explains that sets up the plot and then you just want to rush to, to start your story as like say once upon a time well if the Nazis had nuclear weapons of course they'd win World War II and now we're going to tell a story so in this universe it's uh, no different so the Nazis acquire nuclear weapons and as we just went through in, in 1945 they drop an atomic bomb on Washington that seems to be pretty integral to Germany's victory over the United States. It seems that we get snippets throughout the show that kind of fill in some of the backstory, but it seems like Germany's already conquered uh, France, most likely Britain, basically most of Western Europe. The war has now come to America's shores, but it hasn't invaded it yet, or it might have invaded, but not very far. I think
0: that starts with there was already a land invasion. Yeah. In this world, FDR did not survive his assassination attempt, um, where someone someone assassinated him in our world... He survived an assassination attempt. In this world, it killed him.
1: Favorite question of history teachers everywhere: the idea of turning points in history. You know, what if? Uh, you know, what if Churchill had survived and or not survived? Something, uh, so something that isn't really explained in the in the TV show, but it is more in the book. So it's already losing World War II as it is by 1945. It seems like it's standing alone in the way that Britain stood alone in 1941, with like the an invasion about to happen right on its uh, on its coast. But then the the Nazis dropped the bomb on Washington. So I imagine this is probably a, an attempted decapitation strike. So decapitation strike, we attempt to kill a state's leadership in one strike, leaving them uh, leaderless and defenseless. The whole idea of um, the designated survivor in the State of the Union is obviously to, to avoid this happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Of course, would be an aspect of uh, also implied threat there. So you drop one atomic bomb on a country and that has an immediate effect. But as with uh, the United States and Japan, you drop one bomb, you drop two bomb, and there's the threat of the third bomb, the fourth bomb. If you keep fighting, these are just going to continue until you surrender. In this universe, uh, America surrenders unconditionally to both Germany and Japan. Japan has no nuclear weapons of its own. We s-
0: we see some flashbacks of Julia Crane's early life in the, in on the West Coast. And you see yes, bombs flying overhead with her and her sister. Mentioned
1: to mustard gas and oh, Japan yeah. using chemical weapons, much as it as real history did in um, in invasions of China and that kind of thing. In this alternate history, so America ends up. Uh, inv- uh, nuked, invaded, and partitioned between the Pacific states, which kind of just hug the West Coast up to the Rockies, and then you get the greater Nazi Reich. Within this, you have this idea of nuclear weapons being fundamental. That's how we explain how America finally lost the war and how the Nazis could therefore conquer the entire world. Kind of, I think it's interesting. It's kind of, okay, on one hand, it's a magic baguffin. It just, it's a, it's, like a, it's like a cheat code. You instantly <laughs> win the game. Um, But at the same time, it's something an audience will just implicitly accept. It's like, well, of course, if Hitler had the bomb, of course, they would have won World War Two.
0: Well, it's one of those plots that pops up again and again and again uh, in different stories. Um, is there's there's also this other recent show where this Man the High Castle storyline plays out in in the UK, right?
1: It was originally a book called SSGB, which was then uh, recently, about a year ago now, uh, filmed as a, as a six ep- classic British four episode, six episode series adaptation for the BBC. Although it didn't get a second season, I not think the ratings were that huge. A combination of it being very expensive and the writing wasn't super. <laughs> um, but that depicted Britain in, I think, 1942, 1943, or after a, after a German invasion. And it looked at how British society would adapt to uh German occupation much as man high castle looks at America but there's also a really strong nuclear plot running through SSGB where the Nazi nuclear program is still underway and the Nazis are trying to round up all the British nuclear scientists
2: ah, from okay. the
1: tube alloys project and any nuclear information uh, meanwhile the Americans are trying to those scientists are trying to escape to America with with their information and the British government in exile is trying to organize resistance abroad. So it's interesting, this idea of, of Nazis possessing nuclear weapons is inherently fascinating. And uh, this, it, it comes up in so many different formulations and all these different, whether it's alternate histories or pure fiction, drama, entertainment. Uh, so sometimes I think it's it's much more implicit. I don't know if you ever read the book uh, Fatherland by Robert Harris.
0: I've seen it. I've heard come across it, but never actually sat down. It's a pretty big one, I think.
1: It is. It's, it's a very, it's, so it's kind of, it's written as a detective drama. So it's a, written from the point of view of a German detective I haven't read it in a in a few years so I apologize any fans of the book if I'm nang- mangling this at all but it's um in a victorious Nazi Germany uh quite a long time a couple of decades after the war I think it's actually around 1962 1963 if I remember rightly because I think Germany is also in a cold, is in a cold war situation uh with the United States which is led by JFK who is arming uh hmm. communist rebels in who are fighting an insurgency <laughs> in occupied Russia Um, But again, so you have that idea of a Nazi nuclear capability has helped them win World War II.
0: Yeah, so it's fascinating that this pops up. I mentioned earlier the the city on the edge of forever, which is one of the most popular uh, episodes of the original Star Trek series, has the same basic idea. And it's just essentially if we just kept the United States out of World War II for a couple of years— the Germans were just on the cusp of developing an atomic bomb. And if they just had a couple, mm. if I just had more time, they would have been able to to build it. And I th- we talked about this a lot in that particular episode. So I think if you really want those details, I would go check that out. You want to talk a little bit about here, we can go back and forth on some of the interesting history of how close Germany really was to building an atomic bomb. It's it's hard to tell here in this universe, the, sure. the Man in the High Castle, what other things might have changed in a world where FDR... Was assassinated. And there was different presidential leadership, and science was probably evolved differently. I would say it's a con- misconception how close Germany was to an atomic bomb. We we thought about yeah, it at ab- the time, but looking back on it, not so much. When you have the the twenty twenty hindsight vision,
1: yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, I sound like I'm, I'm really picking the show apart. I really do enjoy it, but this is one. Of, as you say, this is one of those tropes that when it happens in a TV show or a book or something, I start getting like a little twitch of my <laughs> my my historian. Um, like side kicks in and goes that's not accurate because um, so the actual German nuclear program is fascinating to imagine what if so what would Hitler have done with a bomb Germany obviously did have a nuclear program of its own in World War Two it had uh, such people involved as uh, Heisenberg so probably a name everyone knows from Breaking Bad but previously everyone knew from physics
0: they mentioned his name in the show quite a lot they call the Absolutely. atomic bomb the Heisenberg device.
1: So again, so we get the sense of uh, Heisenberg in this version was their Oppenheimer or Mm -hmm. perhaps General Groves or a combination of the two driving the project forward. And and Germany certainly had it was a center of nuclear research and science. Uh, Many members of the British tube alloys atomic program and then the Manhattan Project were German physicists or educated physicists who then fled um, the Nazi regime. To Britain and then onwards to America, or directly to America.
0: I mean, nuclear fission was in like essentially discovered by uh, German scientist Otto Hahn in thirty eight. Mm. So it's like it's it's clear that this is why people would be so concerned that Germany would have had this giant head start.
1: Absolutely, and so it, so it is conceivable that uh, here's a country with the, certainly the scientific basis in order that could achieve a nuclear capability at the time. Obviously, we know a lot about the nature of the Nazi economy, uh, that centrally planned totalitarian regime that can organize massive industrial projects. Here's a country with many of the industrial and scientific capacity to do this. But in terms of the actual progress of the German nuclear program, it was nowhere near as as quick or advanced as lots of fictional portrayals uh, show it to be. So particular constraints were things like, um, well, material restrictions. So Germany fighting a massive two-front war with huge conventional requirements that are draining its economy anyway. On top of that, you have the specific materials required for a nuclear program, heavy water uh, obtaining or refining it, uranium ore, exactly. Then, even if you have all of those things in place, you need the physical space in which to set up the industrial side of producing an atomic bomb. Well, I think one of my favorite stats of which is says the um, I think the Manhattan Project required creating a industrial base that was roughly equivalent to the size of the American automotive industry mm-hmm. at the same at the time. So, for Germany to do that, uh, obviously, America could do that in a continent-sized country. Uh, thousands of miles from any enemy bombers. Germany was trying to do that uh, within range of RAF Bomber Command, and then uh, the American Air Force operating from British airfields. It'd be very hard for Germany to do that in practice with its facilities being subjected to um, repeated bombing.
0: Just to jump in here, one of my favorite stories is after World War II, or maybe right near the end of World War II, there was this operation to basically get intel on how close the Germans were to an atomic bomb. And one of the things that they discovered was that scientists involved in the project, the ways you describe it, they didn't have any space for in, to build a reactor or any sort of uh, uranium enrichment facilities. The only thing that they did was to build a small, like test reactor in the uh, wine cellar of the place they were hiding out in. Like that's that's how much of a space constraint existed in our timeline. I, maybe. You can make the the case that in the Man in the High Castle timeline, there isn't a two-front war because yeah. they either defeated the Soviets first or they defeated uh, the
1: Western Front first. So perhaps Hitler didn't make his mistake of invading Russia when he did. I um, think they, they mentioned – so America obviously defeated in 1945, but they say Stalin was executed in 1949. Mm-hmm. So I got the impression of defeat the West, solidify your position – Wait until you recover, and then probably attack the Soviet Union, probably with nuclear weapons as well. So, but the you know the show isn't interested in filling in all the plot and backstory. But there's little little snippets. I think if, you've a, if you're if you are a history buff and you can imagine the the what if
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, behind all of that. To me, so the idea of uh, you you can imagine the different situations, as you say, of well, what if this was different? Could have Germany have been in a better position? To me, 1945 seems an incredibly optimistic time for a German nuclear capability under the best case scenario. It was a problem I also had in in watching SSGB, where they implied the German nuclear program was much more advanced by 1943 than it really was. Well,
0: the Germans weren't interested in the atomic bomb for like the longest time. There was only uh, 100 or so staff members working on this project. In the United States, it was like 250,000 people just in the United States, not let alone the effort that it took, I mean, the United States could not have built the bomb without help of UK scientists. And they couldn't and have built Canada. the bomb. And yeah. Canada. And without the help of all the, the ex- expats, the people who left Germany, at least according to some of the stories we mentioned earlier, um, uh, Spears, the, the Albert Spears, one of his close advisors, Hitler's close advisors, he was supposed to arrange some kind of a meeting with Heisenberg and Hitler to talk yeah. about the bomb and the and why we could have the bomb and this is one of my favorite quotes. The according to uh, historian Richard Rhodes, who wrote some of the best books mm. on the history of the atomic bomb, so Heisenberg had essentially a PowerPoint presentation of, of mm. what the bomb would be and and how it would work out. His, his famous quote is that they asked him how big a bomb would have to be to destroy a city, and he said about the size of a pineapple. He was, Heisenberg was was really pessimistic about the chances of Germany building a bomb. Didn't think they had all the things he mentioned, the capabilities, the the materials they needed, and they would never finish it by the time the war ended, which I think is a pretty good signal of how close they weren't actually for nineteen forty five. But in this after this PowerPoint presentation to uh, Nazi leadership, uh Speer said that he doubted Hitler understood the bomb's implications saying that quote the idea quite obviously strained his intellectual capacity and that he was unable to grasp the revolutionary nature of the of nuclear physics and therefore the bomb program was largely halted in 42 and you add that plus the fact that they thought that nuclear science and theoretical physics was like a Jewish yeah. science yeah. And they weren't interested in following through with that, more interested in this practical uh, science of, of building domes, I guess. I don't think that the picture we get painted here would have to be radically different in this Man in the High Castle timeline to get one by 1945.
1: Yeah, and I think this, that idea of just how far away Germany was, was it was quite important historically for things like the Manhattan Project. So one reason lots of you know German uh, emigre scientists participated was, you know, you have to justify why are you making a weapon of mass destruction – especially if you've seen war firsthand. But mm-hmm. for lots of the scientists involved, it was the idea of a German, a potential German nuclear capability justified their participation in this international effort, even though you're giving the bomb to the United States, right. because it needed to either deter a Nazi bomb or to beat them to it and win the war. Uh, but when, that, when it became clear like roughly about 1943 that Germany wasn't going to acquire a bomb, that created an interesting moral dilemma for lots of scientists as to whether or not was it moral to continue participating if it was clear Hitler wasn't going to have the bomb? Uh, I think the most fa- famous example would be Rotblatt, who quit the entire program and said, no, this is this is no longer justified. Mm. Some scientists obviously remained on switching their motivation to, well, now it's about winning the war in in the Pacific and saving lives that way. The idea of just how far away Germany was from bomb wasn't a secret, uh, even in the conditions of the fog of war and the chaos of World War Two the scientists and the governments uh, of the West kind of realized that uh, and relatively early on. So the idea of a Nazi nuclear capability in 1945 seems far-fetched for me. <laughs> Again, I don't expect everyone to, to be watching uh, The Man in the High Castle going, well, that's unrealistic. <laughs> I mean, it's a great it's a
0: great plot device. It, it certainly is yeah. those things if you had to say, well, what's one turning point that could have happened? I mean, mm. okay. I, I think it makes a lot of sense because you see in the show – a lot of the bureaucracy of what it would be like to to run um, Nazi Germany in the United States. and you see a lot of the, the politics and the bickering that takes place between different actors. I think mm. that that's a something that comes across pretty big, a lot of backstabbing, and that's something that Heisenberg mentioned about why they weren't close to building an atomic bomb, because German scientists didn't collaborate towards goals like this. They were largely independent, mm. driven projects, looking out for themselves, fighting for the dwindling resources that were available, essentially after World War II was concluded. Uh, the united states and the allied forces brought together all the scientists that were involved in the project and got them together in a room and then said I okay have,
1: i have that later as one of my oh okay um, things to read up on the transcript of their conversations and it makes interesting reading of the scientists actually discussing they were secretly being recorded in the room the yep. next room over uh classic british intelligence there <laughs> um we stuck them in a room with a whole bunch of microphones and um is they've just been told about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and it's fascinating hearing Heisenberg and the other scientists discuss whether or not it actually was a nuclear weapon because they were so far away from a bomb that they found it difficult to believe America could have achieved this in the time available. And there discussions that, well, was it just a massive chemical explosion rather right. than a fission device? So even the scientists themselves didn't think this was a, a near possibility, despite Germany's, you know, obviously obvious advance in other like so-called super weapons.
0: Well, we make this mistake over and over again where we project our own capabilities onto the other side and we project our own worst fears onto the other side. We say, well, if there's a chance that they could do this, we have to plan and assume as if they if they are currently having that capability. I mean, we made the same mistake during the large parts of the Cold War where the United States simply assumed that the, Russia had this gigantic lead in, in missiles. They had this gigantic lead in all of these capabilities. When then you look at, the recently released archives of internal discussions about how much of a mess most of the internal parts of the military were in the Soviet Union. They weren't capable of doing a land invasion of Europe. They didn't have the missile lead that we thought that they did. And then you think about when you project that onto current status today, when we think about what Iran has capabilities for, what North Korea has the ability to do, we do the same kind of planning and it's not all the time based off of intelligence reports or, you know, any sort of evidence. It's based off of worst case scenario planning, which leads us to yeah. have the worst case scenario planning on our own aspects.
1: Yeah, that, that mirror imaging is a real problem. And it's often played out in in the, the nuclear area. So another one is Soviet war planning and... Uh, The way the Soviet Union thought they would uh, know a war was coming was they would see certain signs. Mm -hmm. And all of these signs were things that they would do in the event of war. So one of them was the price of blood will go up in Britain and America. And the Soviets did not realize in Britain, you don't pay for blood. People (laughs) donate for free. But, you know, they did these things. They say, well, when we go to war, we're going to clamp down on the press and well not much for press but we're going to do all of these things and as soon as you see that happen that's a red flag
0: we mentioned this in that threads episode one of my favorite parts of that was artwork would be moved from museums Mm -hmm. to secure locations so have a have a spy you know post it up at the Smithsonian or wherever the uh the loo and just watch the art and see where that's going to go um, I think that's a cool... But it mean you
1: have this absurd situation where a painting gets taken down for cleaning and that's uh. red as a sign <laughs> nuclear war is about to happen because they're moving the expensive part,
2: uh, But it's what? all
1: because of mirror imaging. It's all because of that projecting, you're right, your own fears and assumptions and all. This is what we would do onto black box problem of an opponent of which you only have some or perhaps no information at all.
0: Oh, well, it's tough. Um, When you have these kind of espionage operations... You know, what what intel you get and what's actionable, um, which I think is a good Mm. a good segue to our next section, which is about the nuclear espionage plot throughout the show. So do you want to take the lead on this one? I think this is a this is really a fascinating discussion of where the nuclear monopoly was in the show and how Uh Japan maybe tried to break it down and why and develop their own atomic bomb.
1: So the show is set, as I said, in 1962 And we're presented with a world where there is an unchallenged German nuclear monopoly. So Germany has had the bomb since at least 1945. Uh, We see their huge technological lead. Later, we find out they have ICBMs and SLBMs and uh, a full-on nuclear triad, whereas Japan is lagging behind technologically in all areas. So while you can fly in this world from New York to San Francisco in two hours by jet aircraft, at one point the Japanese Crown Prince visits occupied San Francisco and he arrives in an ocean liner, mm-hmm. which obviously is going to take at least days, if not weeks. And the so the Japanese Empire is Conscious, firstly, of its um, inferior technological status and also the fact that it's living under a condition of nuclear monopoly and it has nothing to rival an atomic capability. And and the Germans only have atomic. They don't have uh, thermonuclear weapons at this point. They just refer to the Heisenberg device and it's clear it's a fission device.
0: I think that's interesting that they, that they never moved to that next level of a scientific advancement in terms of nuclear weapon development because you could make the case that or very early on, the United States scientists uh, knew that, there, that this hydrogen bomb was capable, theoretically, and they just didn't know how they would generate the energy to fuse together hydrogen elements. Ed Teller really was one of the, the Manhattan Project guys. Him and, him and Oppenheimer and a couple other guys were all friends throughout this process, But then Oppenheimer and Hans Betta and a bunch of people said, let's maybe not continue this advancement just simply because we can. Maybe we we shouldn't follow through with it. But Teller was like, no, let's build this now. That was a big push for the super, the hydrogen bomb. And the thought process there was, well, the Russians would develop a hydrogen bomb first. So we need to get to it. This didn't exist in this world in The Man in the High Castle. There wasn't this peer competitor to continue to justify budgets for the atomic bomb mm. maybe if japan had an atomic bomb even if it was a basic fission device that would have pushed heisenberg and his crew to develop it but that never happened. yeah
1: quandary as to so why do certain technologies get developed is it a natural stage of human progress and you know once you realize that fission and then fusion are possible do we naturally as human beings well well of course we'll make a weapon perhaps because you anticipate your opponent might or perhaps just because mm-hmm. Lots of the scientists, obviously, as you say, had moral quandaries as to, I find Oppenheimer to be a fascinating figure in his turning against fusion and making bombs bigger and bigger. But at the same time, he was so behind tactical nuclear weapons, which arguably are even more dangerous because you're trying to make nuclear force usable. I think it raised some interesting moral questions and the idea, well, what uh, about human nature and why do we do things? And you can probably apply that to any technology. I mean, think of drones. Right, right. The idea of autonomous warfare, there's so much stuff being written in the moment about the future of war at sea and nuclear deterrence um, based on submarine platforms. And will we have autonomous nuclear armed drones sinking each other in the sea? And so it, it seems like pie in the sky science fiction. But some of it, I think, is just driven by the fact that, well, if you can foresee technology advancing at least 20 years out, after that, we tend to get really inaccurate. Mm-hmm. You can imagine, well, of course, then we'll turn it into a weapon, and what would that weapon look like and it'll be almost become self-fulfilling
2: and we
0: should have it first, right we can't we, exactly. can't, we can't we can't have a, an underwater drone nuclear attack gap
1: gap <laughs> and and DARPA is a, a, one of the the leaders in, in investing in uh, anti-submarine drone warfare, even though arguably arguably America has after Britain America has the most to lose from rendering SLBM systems less credible. Mm -hmm. Britain is the most vulnerable because that's all we have Uh, at least America has a triad for the (laughs) moment but I I think it's interesting this idea of of technological determinism or is it is it about um, is it about human nature is it about natural scientific progress and these conclusions leap automatically to mind regardless of whether or not you're a pacifist or uh, an intense nationalist as we're seeing in this world but yeah I Within the, get back within the context of this world, I do find it fascinating that uh, the Nazi Germany never thought of making a fusion weapon um, when you would think th- um, the science would lead there. Because as you say, even before the Trinity test, real-life scientists realized this could possibly be achievable if only they can get through certain steps.
0: Right. And that's when we figured out, well, if we use the X-ray, energy, heat, all that power released from a fission device – we can fuse mm-hmm. together hydrogen elements, yeah. which produces more energy per uh, you know, gram of, of plutonium yeah. or uranium than anything else.
1: So in the context of this show, it least, this interesting situation where you have this asymmetric situation of mm-hmm. a Nazi nuclear monopoly, Japan that's lagging behind in all aspects of technology, but especially nuclear weapons. And that prompts a character who is a, a Nazi colonel, and I'm not going to try and do his name because I'm just going to butcher it. Or turned into some kind of horrible stereotype, and I'm sounding like I'm pro Brexit or something.
0: In my in my in my notes, I have him as Nazi spy defector guy.
1: Yeah, I just I kept referring to him just as Colonel, because for one thing, most of the characters just refer to him as Colonel. Uh, we meet this character in the first episode when he's visiting the Pacific States. He's traveling under a false identity. He's traveling as a a Swedish businessman, I think, or a trade delegate. He goes to meet the Japanese trade minister, Tagumi, who is one of the main characters in the Pacific states. And the colonel's mission is to leak the secrets of how to develop, uh, of how to. We don't find specifically what information he's giving, but it's the secret to producing atomic weapons that he's going to give to Japan.
2: Science Minister Shimura
1: found a capsule
0: in his pocket. Inside the capsule was Michael from smuggled from the Wright Research Council in Berlin contents of the microfilm has been confirmed at long last we too possess the data
1: to build a heisenberg device
0: it seems like from the his microfish, right he's got a little yeah little thing there it looks like it's a design for a bomb
1: yeah and we hear later at one point a japanese general saying that the one thing they lack is the knowledge of how to make the actual device so it seems like japan has had a nuclear program they seem comfortable enriching uranium every stage up to the production of a nuclear device except actually how to produce the physical bomb itself
0: which i'm not going to get into huge detail here but that that, that, that was one cut. thing that that is silly to me is because yep. the hardest part about building a bomb is not the actual design of the weapon itself it's yep. f- producing fissile
1: material very good reason that the Trinity test was of Fat Man and not Little Boy, the gun-type bomb, which they were so certain would work that it didn't need a test. Once you pass that certain threshold... Well, I did once meet a nuclear, a British nuclear scientist who, who got triggered by the phrase crude nuclear weapon. She was furious at the idea that there was such a thing as a simple nuclear weapon, <laughs> which is fair enough. But across a certain level of technical capability, which Japan apparently has in this world... There is no reason they shouldn't be able to produce a nuclear weapon of their own. But whatever, for reasons of plot, Japan (laughs) doesn't have this final step. So this German colonel decides he is going to leak the design secrets of nuclear weapons to Japan. But why would he do that? Well, so he outlines his rationale of he believes a war is coming, that his country is going to attack Japan. He gives a couple of reasons for it. One is Hitler is allegedly dying. He foresees some kind of power struggle in which there will be a war launched against Japan, either as an ex- um, Hitler's death will be an excuse to finally fulfill the Nazi's mission of world domination and all the horrible racial connotations of that, or we'll get to this a bit later that a war against Japan is actually part of a larger political intrigue and there are people vying to replace Hitler who are going to use the idea of a Japanese threat to justify their taking power. Mm-hmm. So the colonel's motivation is explicitly to leak the secret of nuclear information, break a nuclear monopoly, and hopefully create a situation of deterrence through mutually assured destruction, which is an interesting rationale and has some interesting historical parallels. And it makes him certainly a kind of fascinating character. And his character develops a little bit across the first season uh, he's eventually caught but after he's, he's he has successfully leaked the secret to the Japanese and we find out he's become disillusioned with he was once a principal Nazi and obviously a mm. very highly ranked one he obviously worked with John Smith in the war but he has become disillusioned with Nazi ideology he makes references to things like you know they have blood on their hands, uh, what we did in Africa and around the world, and it creates an interesting couple of moral discussions with John Smith, who, again, we see John Smith as a real Nazi because he says, no, it was necessary. It was war. He believes in the world they've created, whereas this arch-Nazi, this German, mm-hmm. has completely turned against Nazism to the point of leaking the secret of of nuclear weapons themselves.
0: I will save this for a little bit later in the discussion or what the logic of this plan, would it actually work? Because one of the worst things you can do if if there's one group of people that have nuclear weapons and they have a lot of them and they have ways to deliver them, one of the most vulnerable times you are is if you develop your own atomic device is if you have one of them. Yep. if you have two of them, three of them, and you don't have the ability to, to to launch them quickly if you don't have if they're hidden all that stuff like that is a very vulnerable time and it's one of the most yeah. dangerous points
1: It's a classic nightmare problem for strategists where you start getting into debates about something called existential deterrence mm-hmm. so do you have deterrence when you just have the fact of a nuclear capability of of unknown reliability but you've you've shown you have some level so think of North Korea today or South Africa we don't know how- yeah exactly we don't know how many bombs they have if they're viable or are they deliverable but they've shown some level of proficiency so do they already have deterrence or the other side of that argument is no deterrence relies on assured second strike capabilities survivable command and control all of these kinds of things right. and until you have that situation you have a uh, an unstable crisis dynamic and an incentive for a preemptive or preventive war
0: nazi spy defector guy he thinks either they can develop a bunch of weapons and delivery systems in secret mm. or that this existential deterrence will kick in and the Nazis won't use their weapons against Japan because they just don't know um how many they have which you know hint that's kind of what happens near the end mm. of season 2 i think that that's a fascinating little uh little play there you give somebody the tools to build an atomic bomb but there's more than just having a bomb there's all the other things that we talk about to to death on this on these episodes of command and control delivery systems, all of that stuff.
1: Absolutely, and it should gone out of its way to say explicitly how far behind Japan is technologically, right, right. and show us all these amazing Nazi technical achievements, including jet bombers, a space program, everything else you would need for a prompt first strike capability. So I mean, it's kind of the worst case scenario for Japan,
0: right? It's like it's like a, someone who has uh, a bazooka, and then that person who doesn't have any weapons, you give them a knife, and you're like, all right. Now you guys are basically the same. <laughs> and then the bazooka guy goes, Yeah, no, bye. <laughs> so Avita Zen, I guess, would be the way to do it. This kind of story seems like it parallels and draws upon our own nuclear history here. The idea of defectors giving weapons for politically motivated reasons it was one in particular I think that you outlined here, which I think would be kind of
1: interesting yeah, to talk about. Well- so it reminded me of aspects of, of Klaus Fuchs, who is one of the most uh, famous and potentially quite influential um, nuclear spies of all time. So Fuchs was a, a German-born theoretical physicist who was born in 1911. He was a, a pretty much a lifelong socialist, and then he became a member of the German Communist Party. Um, obviously, it wasn't great to be a communist when the Nazis took over Germany. <laughs> so he uh, fled to Britain in the 1930s. Um, He got his Ph.D. in Bristol. He continued to work in theoretical physics. Um, But when uh, World War II broke out, he was briefly interned as a German citizen and sent to an internment camp. Um, Obviously, Britain then realized uh, it had a pretty capable uh, nuclear physicist under a lock and key. And also Britain started its own tube alloys uh, nuclear bomb program. So he was granted, he was released, granted British citizenship. Uh, He started working in the British nuclear program and then joined the Manhattan Project when Britain, the U.S. and Canada all combined their efforts. Uh, He worked on uranium enrichment by gaseous diffusion at Columbia. Mm -hmm. In 1944, he transferred to Los Alamos where he was working on theoretical physics. Uh, He was present at the Trinity test. contrast with the German program, the Manhattan Project was much more collegial. And the idea of everyone participating, so he also heard a lot of information about other aspects of the program and the physics behind nuclear weapons. But unfortunately, Fuchs had contacted the Soviet embassy and had begun passing intelligence while he was still living in Britain. So the entire time he was working on the British nuclear program and then the Manhattan Project, he was working for Soviet intelligence. Hans better, uh, eventually described Fuchs as the only physicist he knew who changed history. Um, <laughs> I was say, it's, it's quite difficult to gauge precisely the influence he had on the Soviet program, because obviously the Soviet Union didn't really want to say. It's I think it's been argued that one of the major bottlenecks the Soviet faced wasn't scientific and technical information. It was simply like availability of uranium and that holding back testing and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. obviously, espionage isn't going to do much about that. But uh, there's lots of estimates that say folks at least sped their program up potentially by one to two years. So that's quite a significant uh, influence for one man to have. Well, the U.S.
0: Um, thought that the age of nuclear monopoly was going to last a lot longer than four years. Yeah. there was. I mean, I, this is something I would love to delve a little bit more into because certainly the common wisdom is we thought we would have um, t- 10, 15 years or so, maybe at least 10 years of time but it was uh, four short years later before the
1: first bomb. And then getting surprised yet again by the thermonuclear right. tests and, uh, and then um, Sputnik. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing of uh, always underestimating Soviet capability, getting surprised, although ultimately that benefited Britain because it meant America tore up its laws on uh, <laughs> not sharing nuclear secrets. and We got the 1958 mutual defense agreement. Um, so thank you very much. <laughs> but you're right, you have this this situation of, assuming a monopoly, assuming a technological lead over a backward country as they saw the Soviet Union and then getting repeatedly surprised with strategic implications.
0: I agree with you. There's good parallels here uh, for, for this character. and I'm, He's definitely someone who was in the book. Uh, he was a major character in, in the book, almost similar story.
1: I was interested to, to compare the motivations of um, having a humanitarian concern and this idea of breaking a nuclear monopoly so I mean, there are some differences. So, um, Fuchs was obviously a pretty much a lifelong socialist and then communist. He had made contact. I think it was a, a precursor of the KGB hmm. long before he really had any real information to to share. But I find an interesting description in um the book. So this is from uh uh, uh the bomb: A History of Hell on Earth by Gerard De Groot. Former teacher, mine, but that's not why I'm plugging it. <laughs> but I, I, this, I remember reading this years ago, and it kind of stuck in my memory. So his description of Fuchs. Um, Fuchs uh, said of his decision to pass secrets to the Soviets, I had complete confidence in Russian policy, and I believe that the Western allies deliberately allowed Russia and Germany to fight each other to the death. Book hmm. goes on to say, so this is um, the author descri- uh, giving his own view, treason was committed not out of cynicism, self aggrandizement or of any particular hatred of the capitalist world, but rather out of loyalty to mankind. Fuchs thought that the, mon- the monopolization of the weapon by one power endangered world peace. In this view, he had many supporters, but was unusual in his reaction.
0: That, soo- that sounds like this character in the show.
1: Exactly. He's an explicitly humanitarian reason for spreading weapons of mass destruction. And obviously, by doing that, you're raising the potential cost of a war if a war comes, because now both sides are going to be armed with nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. But I think it is fascinating the way this character is portrayed in that here is a committed Nazi and we're given no illusions about his instrumental role in things like genocide who nevertheless has this humanitarian motivation, who has become completely disillusioned, then that also parallels certain real-world cases of espionage or people's motivations for working on weapons of mass destruction but out of humanitarian concerns.
0: Well, he's not wrong, because uh, the next section we'll talk about is Germany had a war plan to attack Japan with a nuclear weapon. So in Season 1 and Season 2, we see this slow, progressive build, kind of what we've been hinting at, that Germany... Doesn't like Japan so much. They're pretending to be friends, to win World War II, and to dominate the world. But the Japanese should have no conception that the Nazis would let them survive and have this type of power. Germany's not thinking about just taking over the United States, taking over the world. They're talking about interstellar Nazism. So it's it's probably no surprise to the characters here that this is what's going to happen. There's going to be an, uh, eventually some sort of an excuse. There's going to be another war in which the new chancellor after uh, Hitler dies, he talks about the war to end all wars, mm. which I thought that's what World War Two was supposed to be. But this one is literally, we'll take over everything with our atomic weaponry and we'll win. So do you want to run through a little bit about why this is happening and what's when, yeah, what, so, what the character trying to do to stop it?
1: So much like the real uh, German state was uh, riven by factionalism and ambition. And that was kind of... It was the idea of um, I was still a quote from a recent episode of Star Trek about painted rust, so that on the surface it looks very shiny and hmm. pristine and ordered. but underneath you have these multiple competing spheres of power and influence, uh, incredibly ambitious individuals, um really all being unified by the personality and figure of Hitler. And there's a whole, Again, another historical genre there of, of historians debating: was this an intentional situation? Hitler deliberately set up the state so people would compete with each other, not with him, and everyone would work towards the Fuhrer. Or actually, was this? He was not that intelligent, and this was an accident, and it was a country just was um, muddling through, as it were. But we see in, in this in this fictional world that uh, the Nazi state has very much continued in that mould. They know Hitler is about to die soon. Therefore, they are anticipating who will follow and what will follow afterwards. And part of that is the idea of a war against Japan, that Hitler has been stopping uh, German people from fulfilling their destiny and for Nazism to spread around the world. And that when Hitler is gone, that impediment will be removed and they're going to launch this. Well, not, not so much a preemptive war against Japan, because Japan can't really do anything to threaten uh, Nazi Germany, but this is uh, this is the final conclusion of World War II, if you like.
0: And under false pretenses, largely. There's this subterfuge plot of the fact that the Nazis uh, think that Hitler was poisoned by Japan. Japan thinks that the Nazis tried to assassinate the Crown Prince just to get people riled up.
1: Cold War genre spy intrigue going on. So, anyway, long story short, there is a kind of semi-successful coup in the nazi reich one of the factions vying to replace hitler succeeds this is led by and I, again forgiveness uh, please forgive me anyone who is german if i butcher these uh yeah his name is hoitzman uh it turns out he he we find out he's the father to one of the main characters we haven't mentioned um imaginatively uh, named just joe no, sure. who's this american character <laughs> um yes we have john smith and joe it's not the most imaginative names for the american characters but um <laughs> Anyway, it turns out he is the son to the second most powerful man in Germany, um, who he's never never really realised or had much of a relationship with. But Heutzmann takes over. Turns out he actually was responsible for poisoning Hitler and framed the Japanese, but no one knows that. And it is his intention to launch a war against Japan for ideological reasons and for this idea of a final victory of the master race, as you say, this idea of a war to end all wars. And once this is done, humanity can progress as they define it and reach out into the stars and we'll have this kind of utopian ideal, but in this fascistic uh, world view.
0: And, he- and they'll do this
1: with nuclear weapons, largely. Yeah, of course, because nuclear weapons are integral to everything, <laughs> including the final Nazi plan. So what's so- their
0: what's their plan here? So they- we we learn this, what, in Season 2, Episode 10. So right, right near the end, the Nazi field marshal... Kind of creates a a similar, you know, the psyop. Here's what we're going to do if we have to fight a nuclear war. He lays yeah. out a, a plan for it. What do you What do you think um, of this plan?
1: Yes, this is, this fascinating scene at the I think it's the very start of the of the penultimate episode where uh, we're in, we're in an underground bunker and it looks, for all intents and purposes, exactly like the uh, war room from Doctor Strange Love.
0: It, it it is. It-
1: <laughs> it's a big round table with a big round light above it. There is a, one of the walls is a giant map of the world with targets and bombers. The big board. The big board. You've got to, you've got to have the big board. <laughs> then a Nazi field marshal is giving a briefing on what the German war plan against Japan looks like. And it's fascinating because I think it mirrors almost exactly what, bear in mind, so this is set in 1962. It bears a striking resemblance, either deliberately or accidentally, to the United States' real life plan in 1962 for attacking the Soviet Union. So, if a nuclear war came, what would America have done? Um, obviously, with completely could not be a strongly differing rationale than the war that's been presented here, which is uh, which is racist and about conquest and everything else. But in terms of the assets that uh, Nazi Germany has developed and the, their plan for using them, it's strongly reminiscent of the real-life plan for nuclear war as it stood in 1962, which was called the SIOP or Single Integrated Operational Plan, because you know nuclear planners they love an acronym. So,
0: what were the different phases of this? I think they called it three phases.
1: So, it's one of these cases where the subtitles don't, I don't think, match what the character says. So, Mm. my German isn't great. But I think the field marshal says, but the subtitles don't, that phase one of the attack is going to be against uh, basically uh, administrative centers. So, I think major cities. And these are going to be launched from new boats and silo based missiles. Uh, He mentions San Diego, San Francisco where obviously several of our characters live, Pearl Harbor, Darwin, Manila, Yokohama, and Vladivostok. Mm -hmm. But they explicitly are sparing Tokyo because they want the, in their initial plan, they want the emperor to survive so the Japanese people can see him surrender.
0: So they'll use the nukes in their first round, and then it will be followed up by conventional forces, right?
1: So yes, after phase one is complete, uh, the field marshal adds that the plan for phase two will be for long-range nuclear bombers uh, to destroy secondary targets. He lists um, Anchorage, Los Angeles, uh, Osaka, Peking, Delhi, so giving a sense of the um, extent of Japanese control, but also that these are very much still... Uh, allied or uh, peripheral territories rather than Japanese, um, the Japanese home islands. Mm -hmm. They say they estimate time to completion will be six hours from launch. And then this will be followed up with a phase three, which is a ground and marine invasion to secure an occupied territory. And they anticipate that the entire war will last two weeks. That's pretty quick. To conquer the rest of the world. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty speedy.
0: Not a bad couple of days of work. But this also sounds like it might result
1: in quite a number of uh, fatalities. Do they... So at one point, the uh, Chancellor Heutzmann asks, uh, projected enemy casualties, and the Field Marshal replies... Uh, The nuclear attack will result in 15 to 16 million dead. Ground invasion will add another 2 to 3 million. And they say uh, casualties borne by the German side. will probably, aside from any military casualties, there will only be a couple of hundred thousand civilian casualties, but largely confined to the (laughs) occupied United States, where they say uh, because of the technological difference, um, Japan doesn't really have much of a capacity to attack Europe, so they will largely attack German-occupied peripheral territories. Which is obviously where lots of our characters live, so we're meant to care. <laughs> uh,
0: so there's there's quite a lot here to uh, talk about um, because this is a this is an ambitious plan, and you said that there's parallels between here uh, and the psyop. Um, how do you think uh, this plan might work? How would you see this play out given maybe what Germany had in 1962 in the Man in the High Castle timeline?
1: Yes, I mean. On the big board, we, as the field marshal is giving us briefing, we see where all the um, we're not told specific numbers as to how much Germany has of the you know, very different capabilities, but we see roughly where they're stationed, what their attack profiles would be, and we see they do have a full nuclear triad, and they make explicit reference to SLBMs, and we see they're being launched from very close to Japanese territories. Those are submarine launched ballistic missiles. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yes, as a nuclear weapons acronym heavy.
0: No, it's fine. We 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 have a, our listeners are usually have been accustomed to this by now, but I just wanted to just throw that out there. Uh,
1: we see ICBMs as well, which again, if Germany has a space program, wouldn't be that surprising. Bearing in mind, Germany in real life was uh, launching V one and V two rockets, you know, guided weapons um, in World War Two. So with twenty years of unfettered technological progress, I imagine Nazi Germany probably would have ICBMs and definitely would have thought to put a nuclear warhead on the tip. like The V2 has the um, unenviable distinction in real life of being the only weapon that killed more people making it than <laughs> uh, were on the receiving end. Uh, it really just lacked a payload to make it strategically significant, but obviously the Nazis have solved it in this case.
0: I would be surprised uh, that they didn't talk about orbiting nuclear platforms of, of dropping bombs. <laughs> that was something that was talked about in the 60s and the 70s and and in, in the 70s there you know pretty strong ideas of dropping these things from space mm-hmm. meaning that you couldn't get to them uh by the time you launched a missile to hit them it would be all right well we're going to drop them uh the weapons and
1: fears of soviet moon bases and all kinds of crazy things
0: <laughs> Yeah I'm I'm surprised they, they didn't talk about that but that might have been a little yep. bit of a plot too far Yeah Maybe in season
1: three. Oh, maybe. Um, yeah, but so I think this idea of a staged attack, it makes uh, sense in universe. It makes sense according to what we know from our own uh, nuclear war plan. So you, you start with the forces that are on the the shortest. They they, they mentioned the fact that uh, these forces can be launched within 15 minutes. So they're pretty much on hair trigger uh, alerts. Uh, they're obviously stationed quite close to their targets. We see that from the big map. Uh, This will, to some extent, uh, soften the enemy defenses, uh, will open up channels, along which they say stage two is going to be largely uh, airborne nuclear systems, so long range bombers. So this is quite similar to... NATO's actual plans in the 1950s and onwards for war against the Soviet Union, in which forces stationed in Europe, particularly things like the Thor missile in Britain, Jupiter missiles in Turkey, also uh, Britain's RAF Bomber Command and its uh, V bomber force, would attack the Soviet Union, opening up channels along which subsequent long range American bombers from Strategic Air Command could then flow through and conduct what we call follow on attacks, uh, laying down weapons on a much wider selection of targets. And then Whatever is left is basically a subject for a conventional war, which, as I say, in this is Nazi stage three plan for a ground invasion, and that is when you you take and hold territory rather than just a punitive uh, use of nuclear force.
0: That is a very credible war plan, and it seems like it would work, at least in terms of achieving the idea of military surrender. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to still deal with resistance, but... The Germans have ways of of working through that uh, in this world. But it just amazes me that we're drawing essentially a PSYOP-like plan, which assumes that the Russians have nuclear weapons a triad, very similar to to ours, and we're trying to get at it first. Mm. Go, the one thing that's missing from this war plan is going after, you know, doing counterforce targeting, going against the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenal, because there is no nuclear arsenal in Japan in this world. But it just amazes me that there's such a, this particular plan relies on the idea that we have to act fast to get all these targets and then run through. But Japan is so far behind in this world. In terms of its military capabilities, technology, and a nuclear payload, they lack all of these things. It amazes me that Japan let this happen.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think in this in this world, you would not want to. I mean, so every this is a classic problem of international relations. You have an anarchical world system. There is no one to guarantee your survival. What challenges that uh, create for states? And a classic one is. Well, you can't really rely on trust. You have to do you assume the potential for cheating or um, that your opponent is lying to you, even in the context of an alliance. So, how Japan would assume that uh, even if they were allies and had a mutual endeavour in winning World War II, that would persist post-war, and especially if with in the case of a Nazi nuclear capability, you've seen that a country willing, perfectly willing to to wipe out whole peoples, certainly to right. destroy whole cities. And you're just going to be content with allowing that situation to continue, especially reinforced by other imbalances. That's a terrible kind of strategic situation for Japan to be in. Um, So in-universe, it seems like Japan has really dropped the ball. (laughs) Um. It's very vulnerable.
0: I guess that feeds into the story. The Crown Prince is a very cautious person. He knows Mm. that we can't instigate uh, any sort of conflict with the Germans. And we need to be cautious of the fact that they have this incredible capability and he seems to be someone who isn't saying, "Let's build up our arsenal, let's develop weapons." He seems more of a peaceful, let's get along kind of person. And I think that's an interesting little distinction, maybe an explanation too, about why Japan is in the condition that it is. Even though mm. there are definitely elements within the military that want to build a nuclear bomb.
1: Yeah, so we kind of we we skip past this a bit earlier, but um, so that in that uh, nuclear um, esp- uh, espionage plot where the uh, Nazi colonel wants to leaks secrets for reasons of deterrence and he assumes that if japan acquires nuclear weapons that will deter germany the trade minister he leaks the secrets to also believes that as well but as soon as they give the information to the japanese government the japanese generals immediately talk about using this nuclear capability you are aware that our failure to develop the heisenberg device has put us at a strategic disadvantage to the nazi empire while our science minister was here for the crown prince's address He discovered a roll of microfilm in his suit pocket, contained technical information needed to build our own device.
2: If we develop our own weapon, we will have parity with
1: the Nazis. We have no interest in parity.
2: But surely, a balance in power would achieve the Crown Prince's dream of a sustainable
1: peace. The Crown Prince is a changed man since he attempted assassination. He has woken up to the Nazi threat. And I know the trade minister is horrified. Yeah. He doesn't believe his country would use nuclear weapons in an aggressive manner Again, so many parallels to real world history that it's kind of depressing. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, yeah. uh, it's this idea of, you know, what do humans do no matter what part of the multiverse we're in? Give the humans nuclear weapons and immediately they'll think about the aggressive use of it rather than just deterrence.
0: Uh, so we, let's let's talk about Joe Blake. Joe Blake is a character who we find out, we think he's just an average guy, you know, an average Joe um, that Julia Crane runs into. They form some sort of a brief but strong romantic connection when they're when she's uh, on the run. and it turns out that Joe was actually a a spy. He was a, a Nazi spy uh, working with John Smith to find some of these film reels that the man in the high castle is is collecting. he I think Joe's was his plan to kill the. The man in the high castle, or to to capture him. He's, he's
1: given that mission by uh, Smith. Quite, I think, episode four or five. He, he has a chance to meet him, and he's given instructions to kill him at all costs.
0: So as they go through this, and Joe is an interesting guy because he is conflicted. His his he was raised in the United States. It turns out that he is actually the byproduct of a real life ex- experiment program to develop super children, children that are genetically pure for the Aryan conception of what people should be. And his biological father is uh, Hoisman,
1: who will rise to become chancellor and has had a very bad relationship with Joe, who feels like he he has never known his father and just thinks he was abandoned.
0: Because the mother saw what was going on and took him away and raised him in the United States. But clearly, Joe got looped back into this world in terms of his ability to be as in terms of his his fate to be a spy so joe's eventually kind of connects back with his father he's sent to germany to talk with his father because his father no longer has any heirs all of his children have died in various wars or illnesses so he, that father wants joe not just to get you know let's play ball in the back of the, of the yard and start playing catch and stuff but we, i need you to be here for you know political purposes dynasty purposes so yeah. joe is in the room during this war plan doesn't like the fact that there's this many casualties being involved so i think that's a key point because world uh, multiverse type jumping between worlds Uh, The trade minister is able to get a film reel of a nuclear test from the Bikini Atoll in our timeline. This is a giant in the Pacific Ocean test uh, of a hydrogen bomb. And so they they have this film reel, and then it's brought over. And then we'll talk a little more about this in a second. But Joe wants to stop the war from happening. The trade minister wants to stop the war from happening. So does John Smith. He wants to stop a war from taking place. So they use all of these different things and try to stop this, this war plan from happening.
1: Joe as a character, he's quite simple in terms of his, for two seasons, his only question is, who am I? What do I want to be? He kind of wants to be a better man. Mm -hmm. Classic TV film trope. He falls in love with Juliana at first sight. It's it's one of his only consistent motivations is uh, she has a good effect on him and he wants to be a better man for her, even though he, he doesn't see her again for most of the series. He thinks she's dead several times.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Repeatedly, several times.
1: repeatedly, he's told she's dead. So when anyway, he goes to Germany, he meets his father. There's this initial bad relationship, but then he starts to warm to it, and he kind of considers, you know, what could a good man do in a bad country? They would be the next, um, you know, people like him will be the the next generation to lead. So he has this brief moment of thinking, oh, actually, can I can I live in this Nazi world and be quite important and actually be a better man and maybe use some of this power to better ends than the generation that came before me. Take down the right from the inside. Exactly. So then he sees this nuclear war plan, and he uh, sees uh, Himmler and so forth talking casually about not just millions of dead in Japan, but uh, hundreds of thousands killed in the former United States, where obviously he's grown up. And so, yeah, this creates this another existential crisis for him, and he kind of, he, uh, spoiler, he turns against his father, and he hel- he's instrumental in stopping the war by this overly, well, quite overly elaborate, subterfuge where, uh, <laughs> where they use footage from our real world to convince the nazis that japan has a hydrogen bomb but i don't know as much as i like the show i find joe he's, he's perfectly well acted i find the, the biggest slice of white bread he's so dull <laughs> <laughs> it's just the fact that he just is constantly going back to this question of who am i i want to be a better man am i a better man who am I? All the way through. And it, it's, um, it runs through two seasons. I find him just really quite dull. And it's not the actor's fault. I think it's just the way the character's written. But he's he's in the middle of this this nuclear war plan. And and this nuclear war plan, I think it's interesting that it's, it causes this existential crisis for all these characters. as so they look at the implications of what nuclear war actually are. Mm-hmm. But also that this nuclear war resembles so much what a real nuclear war in our world would have been. So the situation of we're looking at this evil world where the Nazis are in charge. And, of course, this is the worst possible history, but I think the show has this implicit criticism of, well, are we that much better? If our real plan was also to have a war that would have had, I think, the estimates for PSYOP by the mid-60s uh, were have 200, 285 million dead. I mean, it's hard to get on your moral high horse about how you're fighting a nuclear war. There's many other problems, obviously, I'm not equating. Right, right, right. Our world with their world, but in terms of the way the show repeatedly returns this idea of nuclear weapons, I think is interesting, and it gets so detailed as to the nature of a nuclear war, much more than the show has to be. Uh, I also find quite interesting. I think either the writers must be nerds about this stuff and are drawing deliberate parallels, or you know someone just did their research for authenticity's sake and they've accidentally made this implicit criticism of our own history and our own relationship with nuclear weapons Um, but you know i think it's fascinating just seeing the the comparisons between this nazi nuclear war plan and the real life uh, and obviously we're only talking about uh, western plans for nuclear war as they both existed in 1962 and also just the imagery of that whole scene and the dr strange love influences i um written all over it. Uh, I...
0: Well, one of my favorite things about those kind of scenes is how dark the rooms are always. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's like, no, you just get better lights.
1: Um, People tripping on the way in and out because nothing is lit except a table.
0: Right. It, the, this happens a lot in the West Wing, too, where the Situation Room is just, because of trying to create an atmosphere. It's so dark. I mean, I've been in the Situation Room. It's very small and it's very well lit. Like, it's not a problem that you would have. Yeah, I don't know. I always think it's kind of funny. That's okay. So... We talk a little bit about what Joe eventually does to stop the the war from happening, but Japan tries to build their own weapons in this world, too. So we have the, the plot lines of the colonel bringing the of how to build a bomb, uh, and then we have this little fun story. This is what kind of got me starting to think a couple of, when I last year when I watched the show first, of what would be a cool discussion point is this idea that Japan needs uranium. They need enriched uranium to build a weapon. So they have to figure out a way to do this in secret without having the Germans uh, realizing what's happening. So I think that's our fifth big talking point here will be the Japanese nuclear program and their failure to develop weapons over time. Because it seems like, the, if you mentioned, they're somewhat interested in an atomic bomb program. They've tried, but they weren't able to figure it out before. But now they're they're trying to do it. So there's this little intrigue about ur- uranium enrichment. And this is what kind of triggered my... Uh, mm. my—is this accurate or not? Discussions. They, they 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 kind of gloss over the fact that uranium enrichment. We just need to find the ore, and they find the ore in some of the neutral zone territories, right? Where they they mm. they get some of the the uranium ore, and then they. You think in this world there is a a nuclear reactor program, like a power so reactor I, program? I was trying
1: to make sense of this. So as much as I think so many of this show gets so many details in this show are really well done and researched. This bit makes no sense to me. So when Japan, it seems, finally gets the information how to build a bomb, first they have to develop the fissile material in order to actually construct the bomb. According to the things we see in the show, it seems like Japan, as soon as they get the information, and I mean literally days later, they send teams out into the neutral zone, so separating Japanese Pacific Territory with North American Reich, to look for untapped uranium deposits. This is then uh, enriched, apparently on location, and shipped back uh, in containers uh, that are um, hidden inside uh, commercial passenger buses, which are then brought to San Francisco uh, where everything is accumulated within a depot where apparently they're constructing their bomb. This whole plot takes place within the in-universe time of three weeks. Oh, it's crazy. Which seems some pretty rapid progress there. I mean, credit where it's due. Um, but also the logic behind it at all is uh, incredible to me um, because I love the idea that as soon as Japan... which So Japan is determined to have a covert program. It's concealing its activities, hiding things in passenger buses, but it looks for uranium on the only land border it shares with the German <laughs> Nazi Reich, when the, um, which, there were, yeah. Uh Has a high chance of being detected. And we hear, you know, we see from maps that Japan controls lots of other territory, which assuming all other things are equal, would also have ample uranium deposits of its own. They don't, I don't see why they need to mine for uranium in the Rockies. Right. um, Especially when they control vast amounts of like China and so forth.
0: Yeah. Places where there's vast, vast, vast amounts of this stuff. Uh, And not only, and not only that, but they have to develop some sort of enrichment program, right? So what do they do? Do they do gaseous diffusion, which takes up a gigantic amount of space Essentially, you're shooting uranium gas through a series of filters, and it takes a lot of energy and power to uh, separate the uranium and to run these things. And you have to do them over and over and over yeah. again. It took months and months to produce tiny little piles of <laughs> uranium. It was like it's a huge accomplishment. So you have gaseous diffusion, which was an incredible achievement then you have the process of using electricity to separate various elements of uranium so uranium as our listeners are very well aware uh in in nature uranium the type of concentration of the different isotopes you want there's a great isotope you need to build a bomb that's very easily go super critical it'll break up fairly fast and it will create more neutrons to break up other elements of this uranium and that's great but in nature fortunately The type of concentration of those elements is very rare. It's like less than 1%. It's like less than half a percent. So you have to separate that out. And it's not simply a matter of of slicing and dicing. You have to turn the uranium ore, mill it, turn it into a gas or a powder, and then do other things to it. Japan just seems in this show, yeah, we can figure that out. No problem. And
1: so the vast industrial base is already there to do it. It just is lacking the raw material to push in.
0: This, that's what the Manhattan uh, Project was, was it was, yeah. to, it was to create fissile material. It wasn't to build um, a bomb. You know what I mean? I think
1: it also the, the show breaks its own mythology where the characters have explicitly said the only thing they lacked was the scientific information of the weapon design, which implies they have everything else sorted. Uh, silly. Um, they were just waiting on the, like, someone to give them technical specs.
0: But it does try to uh, paint characters and what they mm. and what they think and how they respond and their own motivation so
1: yeah so because the real reason for this is plot yeah <laughs> rather than logic but it, it happened that the reasons of plot are one of the cases where it's so authentic everywhere else that this bit is screamingly hilariously <laughs> inaccurate <laughs> uh within the space of these these few weeks the japanese teams have gone out they have found uh, unmined uranium ore they've extracted it They've enriched it. Again, still in the neutral zone, right where we have seen Nazi agents running around. They have human intelligence. They've got signals intelligence. (laughs) Uh, They have presumably satellites, everything else. Um, But anyway, somehow Japan enriches uranium, packages it, but they now need to ship it to San Francisco. And they decide they're going to do that by packing it in crates and storing these on uh, public buses, Uh, not specially charters, regular public buses.
2: You altered my plan? As Trade Minister, I'm familiar with trucking companies and their routes. I believe that the use of private trucks would lessen the risk of unforeseen dangers. Risk? Dangers? To what do you refer? Transporting enriched uranium on public buses would expose women and children to lethal levels of radiation. American women and children, not Japanese.
0: This is, this was, it got me so frustrated because (laughs) it's such a weird thing. Like this is the one point where we're going to be secret about, and not only that, it creates this picture of uranium being this item that if you take it out of the ground and, or if you enrich it, you can't touch it. You can't even be in a bus full of people. Mm. This is a tiny little science thing, but like sitting on top of enriched uranium, even if it's weapons grade uranium is really, really not that big of a problem. Mm. Uranium has such a low level of radiation, it's not until you start to put it into a supercritical configuration. So, unless mm. they're storing, which oscillate like causes a supercritical reaction and explodes things, that unless the uranium, the enriched uranium is stored in that weird particular configuration, <laughs> it won't be producing any sort of actual radiation, which is the energy released from breaking apart these atoms. Uh, it's not like plutonium, spent fuel plutonium, mm. is very radioactive. That was what you'd have to, you know, shield with lead and all these different things. Uranium, even enriched uranium, you can hold in your hand. It's warm, it's hot, but it won't give you this type of concern. So it's kind of funny that they're they're concerned about certain things. And this is like such a, it's a character moment. It's to show that Tagomi yeah. cares about civilians. But it was one of those things where I was like, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> don't say, you, we have enough concerns about radiation and nuclear yeah. material. Don't pretend like enriched uranium under a bus in a packaged container with, fr- you know, a fruit box or something, will cause this sort of a problem. So right. they're
1: imagining like the credits of The Simpsons, you know, the green rod yes, dinging yes, out yes, and yes. that kind of thing, and you can't touch it; and it'll melt through the floor. <laughs> um, but I also, I also enjoy the idea that this is meant to be a covert program, but they're going to irradiate civilians, and no one's going to notice. A whole bunch of civilians are turning up from radiation sickness. Yeah. <laughs> um, you kind of red flag that you're up to something. And it's not the most covert program in the world. So
0: it's crazy, but they so they take this uranium. And they bring it to uh, this warehouse that we talked about. And the warehouse is is aw- known by the Resistance. This is the other storyline that I, I don't really want to get into. Because one, I th- I find this storyline to be the worst of the entire show. And it's this other character, Frank Fink. Or Frink, I think is his, his name now that he is in hiding. He's essentially his father, I believe. Or his, his grandmother. Um, I think his grandfather is Jewish. So he would, if identified in was living in German ter- occupied territory, would be killed. But he's this character who was originally the boyfriend of Juliana Crane. Uh, in this really, really horrific scene, mm. his his sister and his sister's family, um, because they were trying to find information that Frank might have known about the resistance, they get gassed in the police department's uh, like interrogation room. And Frank then gets so upset that he then becomes part of the resistance. And the resistance oh. knows about the bomb process, or at least the, he he figures out that they're building a bomb there because uh, every, all the people that are working there are carrying radiation detection batches to determine whether or not they met their dose of radiation for the day or in the lifetime. So he realizes that there's a bomb process there. And I think the resistance plan is they know this is happening. They know, and you see the cans of uranium being delivered yeah. from the bus there. Really terrible... Uh, information security
1: yeah just the doors are wide open and frank frank is there posing as someone who's he's selling uh like bento boxes i think yeah. it, it's it's lunch and um they open the door so wide that he can see Everything about, he can see the buses, he can see what's being unloaded, he can see the radiation badges. Crazy. They see the power lines that are going into this building that shouldn't need so much power. Yeah. Um, so all along, this this supposedly, this is intentionally covert program is kind of advertising, we're doing something suspicious <laughs> at every right. stage. In, uh, and it's like they're going out of their way to be caught.
0: Uh, so the resistance knows this is happening, and they say, we need to blow this up because if the Japanese get a bomb then therefore San Francisco is going to be a target, and we don't want that to take place. Because they don't know that the reason why the Japanese are developing a bomb is to stop the Nazis from attacking San Francisco. So it's as mo- I think it's as- this is kind of interesting. There's lots of levels of everybody either wants a bomb to happen with Japan mm. or not happen with Japan to stop a war or to cause a war. It's this kind mm. like everyone has different ways of interpreting – deterrence and what deterrence is and proliferation and what proliferation can or can't do.
1: Yeah. And so the idea of, you know, if we have it, we become a target is certainly something you find in the actual Cold War. So the stationing of, say, American cruise missile mm-hmm. forces in Europe, there's a long legacy of of anti-nuclear activism in Britain that originated with um, those initial deployments. Uh, as was, and, and the idea of, well, by deploying these weapons in Europe, we'll become more of a target for the Soviet Union And perhaps if we denuclearize, uh, they'll leave us alone. Obviously, you can probably critique that view, but it's a view that exists. And I think it's fascinating the way this show does in this crazy, horrible, dark universe. And it does deal with some fairly dark things. Also parallels our own real-world experience of nuclear weapons. And um, I think that's what good sci-fi should do, really. And I do see this as a sci-fi show. It should. Hold up a mirror through some ridiculous premise but which nevertheless we can empathize with and they managed to sneak in some good history it's just the technical details in this bit uh, or if we're grading <laughs> the show this this is the one that gets an f
0: it's such a weird weird story and how it's done but i mean it, i'm sure people that maybe are just watching this that aren't weirdos like us um yeah. are probably like like, I say, it's, it's
1: for sense. reasons of plot but i think right. if anyone knows anything about nukes you will be uh tearing your hair out writing angry <laughs> letters and it, uh, more seriously, it might, as you say, perpetuate some myths about the way weapons actually work, what uranium is, what radiation is, uh, what some of the actual risks are.
0: I'm glad the trade minister had that kind of a st- of a story and a plot because he's the one, he's the one in our story in season two that goes back and forth between the worlds. He actually ends up going to our timeline, in San Francisco, and in this timeline, he lives with his wife and son, who's grown up son. In, in his actual world, his wife and son are dead, right? So this is yeah, so like an in, a-
1: in evil timeline. His wife and child died in World War II. So while Japan was victorious, he lost everything that was important to him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He, through complicated reasons of meditation... Uh, figures out how to move between the multiverse. He ends up in our real world, but he arrives uh, unfortunately for him at the very beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis.
0: Terrible timing.
1: (laughs) Terrible timing, but he stays in America where it turns out in our real version of history after the war, he moved to America with his wife and child. He both survived. Turns out his doppelganger was not a particularly nice man. He couldn't uh, adapt to life in america he became estranged when his son started dating uh an american who just so happens to be doppelganger juliana yeah uh has walked out on the family so R takumi walks in taking the shoes of his uh his doppelganger and he lives in our universe for the duration of the cuban missile crisis meeting his own son seeing the life he could have had had things been different um but he's a very interesting character I think, he's the most he doesn't say or do much there's a lot of just staring at things and feeling things very deeply and i think in anyone else's hands it could be a really absurd character um but the actor plays it i think pretty much pitch perfect and you really care for him through very small gestures i find
0: Yeah, Tuck is a great actor. He's in he's in so many good things. It's it's upsetting that even though I really like you know side note I really like the uh, Mortal Kombat movie, um I saw that when I was a kid. Um, but he's you know he's known a lot for like he was he's in Pearl Harbor. He's in a lot of these bad movies, but he's a very 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 good actor, and I'm I'm glad we get to see him flourish. Where I think the show starts to maybe, um fall apart a little bit is his trips to San Francisco. Our timeline.
1: They drag it out.
0: They, they, not only they drag it out, but it's like he comes to realize, oh, this timeline is great. Look how amazing America is. Look how great they are. Multicultural. They're, they're all these people, like Juliana and his son, are essentially anti-nuclear protesters. Yeah, they're 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 forming uh, groups and signs to um, like actual heart-carrying signs about banning the bomb. And his son
1: attends. Berkeley. So if you're going to be an anti-nuclear protester, there's no better university for you to go to.
0: Yep, you see the peace symbol, the uh, the classic peace symbol, which I'm, I'm glad they included that there. We talked about that before, that actually originally is used for nuclear disarmament efforts, yeah. uh, and then it's, now it's a it's symbol for regular international peace overall. Um, but he, I think he comes to see, like, this is where a world could have been, and even though it sucks that Japan was defeated, look, Japan is eventually somewhat coming out of this okay uh, and it becomes this, instead of multiple layers of uh, moral complexity, He he's a character who says, when he comes back to his own timeline, it's more of a black and white issue for him now. Yeah. His Japanese uh, leaders are terrible. In the other world, America's great, so let's try to get it closer to that. But this all leads to our last point, which is about the role of nuclear deterrence in the plot. Because he brings back a film that has, uh, essentially, it's like test footage from a 1950s test. And it's not... Yeah, I
1: think, it, I think it's Castle... Is it Castle Bravo? I, I looked through loads of nuclear test footage, and eventually I just became dispirited of watching nuclear weapons explode. <laughs> um, but it's definitely it's definitely a hydrogen bomb test. It's definitely in the Marshall Islands. Um, I don't think it was Ivy Mike, but I think it was Castle Bravo.
0: I think it's Castle Bravo. I mean, that's certainly the one that's most famous. Uh, and I think it would be very fitting that it's Castle Bravo, because... That is also known as when the there was a larger explosion than originally expected and it yeah. caused radioactive fallout mm-hmm. to fall on a Japanese fishing boat, the, the mm-hmm. Lucky, Dragon. Lucky Dragon. And that produced a huge amount of um, uh, inspiration for people to ban nuclear testing, which is exactly that's what, what is his son it. is involved. So I, I would say that that's what it is. If it's not, I think plot-wise, it essentially fills that spot. That tape is brought to the actual world. I guess if you're holding on to something— yeah,
1: so I- I think Segumi has just seen – so he's he's watched the, the Cuban Missile Crisis firsthand. He's seen two states on the point of nuclear war but also then decided not to go to war because they have been mutually deterred.
2: Mm-hmm. Although he
1: also sees the concern. He sees people stockpiling food and really thinking war is coming and seeing the risks of a world based on nuclear deterrence. But obviously, if you think conflict is inevitable, better to take a chance at deterrence than definite nuclear war. So he comes back to his evil universe with the footage in hand, and he hatches a plan that Japan is going to convince Nazi Germany that Japan not only has a nuclear capability, they have a thermonuclear capability, and that, therefore, if uh, Germany attacks Japan, Japan will be able to retaliate with a massive nuclear attack of its own. So I think the show directly confronts the idea of Nuclear deterrence and specifically mutually assured destruction as being a means to avoid war, but then also direct. It's the most direct, I think, comparison it draws between our world and Mm -hmm. the risks we have run in nuclear deterrence with the show's portrayal of the cost of nuclear war and actually what are the moral implications then of of nuclear deterrence you know if one side is determined to attack another is nuclear deterrence a good thing are you ensuring that if a war comes just even more people are going to die i find it one of the most effective bits of the show but you know again i probably would say that because this is literally my day job <laughs> so i would be interested <laughs>
0: it kind of made me think of um two things one back to the future the the scene of Back to the Future where Marty uh, is in the past and he's playing rock music and it's so great, but no one really understands what it is. And you have that guy in the background that calls uh, his, I guess, cousin or something, Chuck Berry. It's like, you know where that sound you were thinking of? You couldn't yeah. figure it out. Listen to this. It's a lot like, you know, hey, remember that nuclear strategy or deterrence strategy we were trying to come <laughs> up with? Listen to this. This is perfectly – is how it will work.
1: Um, and the solution is more bombs and bigger bombs. Big bombs. As, bombs. as well, okay. which – Directly <laughs> is 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 the logic that were many a nuclear strategist uh, followed
0: and the other s- parallel that i see is have you ever played the bioshock video games
1: oh yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah so bioshock infinite the last one there's this great story about multiverse type stuff where a person mm. in the story develops uh can 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 travel between worlds and mm. essentially travels to worlds where amazing things have happened and then took those ideas and then brings them to his world, and he like compiles essentially like Wikipedia, and is mm. able to create like I'm going to invent this beautiful music, and I'm going to say it's mine. I'm going to get the money and the fame from creating essentially something he stole from as
1: someone you would. else. I mean, as you would, yeah. <laughs> right. If you could steal Google, you would steal Google, <laughs> right?
0: Um, exactly. Togomi takes mutually assured destruction, says, "Hey, you know what? That actually works pretty good." Um, mm. And takes us over and brings it to his world. Maybe not. That's a little more simplistic, but. That's essentially no, what happens. It's that's
1: not an overly sophisticated plot that they... Ha- and he has support in this from Smith. So we go back to the, back to where we began, this complicated character where...
0: So I'll say, so we should go through this. The, the film reel is made. It gets given to an anti-nuclear demonstrator. It gets mm. stolen by the father, Tagomi, brought into his own timeline. Given to Inspector Keto, who then travels to New York New York, yeah. gives it to Obern Gruppenheimer Smith, yep. who then takes it on a his secret mission when he's not supposed to leave uh New York, he goes to Berlin gives it to Joe Blake, yep, convinces Joe Blake to give it to his father by saying that, look, you thought that um Juliana Crane was dead, turns out I've had her in my control recently because I'm going to use her as a man- basically to manipulate you yep. uh, Joe Blake decides all right well this is going to work so he takes that to the Nazi high command including his father they watch the film and they go oh crud Japan has a thermonuclear bomb because that was one of mostly that-
1: almost all of them as well
0: yeah so so Kido says this clearly could not be real this film real because it's in Japanese territory and I know everything that goes on in Japanese mm. territory, I, this could not have happened because I guess Japanese – Kido, even though he's like a, a police officer essentially, he has the full scope of what's happening everywhere around Japan territories. This uh, – the plan works. He convinces them by saying, I don't know when they developed this test. And as they get past the deterrence problem here by saying, oh, they may have dozens of these weapons yeah. and who knows if they have the ability to to use them. Now this gets to the fun other connection to *Strangelove*, which is why would you develop this amazing tool for deterrence and then not <laughs> tell
1: anybody about it? Because it was due to be announced at the party conference <laughs> next
0: <laughs> week. He's a, the the new the new prime minister is a, a stickler for surprises. Um,
1: yeah, so I mean, so the, you know, it's presenting this idea. Of, they're basically trying to bluff a nuclear capability in order to deter a war, which. You know, there's there's an argument for that about um, in nuclear deterrence, how much should you um, be explicit about your capability and your plans and how much should you rely on ambiguity Right. Uh, rather than we will uh, nuke the Soviet Union when you cross the Rhine. You say we will nuke the Soviet Union at some point, so don't test us. Uh, or, you know, we will respond with force and not define what that is. So in this case, they're, they're um, trying to explicitly show the um, German leadership that, nope, Japan has a nuclear capability. It's thermonuclear in nature. Um, apparently, they've developed it in complete secrecy. <laughs> um, you haven't... This is one of the problems I have, again, with the authenticity. So uh, nuclear testing is hard to keep secret, especially doing atmospheric testing. Right. They explicitly show the most like, powerful explosion I think humanity <laughs> has ever created um, until Tsar Bomber. Um, And in real life, in the 1960s, uh, we had the technology to detect nuclear tests um, as they were happening. So, Britain, America, uh, other NATO powers, and so we regularly flew nuclear sniffer flights around the world to detect the signs of uh, nuclear testing. You could you could apparently obtain so much information from this that you could work out um, specific design characteristics of the bomb that was tested. You know, and that was in our real life history in 1962. This is a super futuristic world where the Nazis are already have, jet, uh, you know, uh, transatlantic jet aircraft, apparently, you know, um, uh, they're a complete totalitarian state. Right. We've seen great human intelligence, great signals intelligence. They have uh, a complete nuclear monopoly and yet somehow they don't notice the biggest, one of the biggest nuclear explosions ever and are completely convinced by this footage. Um, But, you know, again, the deterrence there is to me, you know, the counter argument to that would be um, how much of a risk do you want to take? So if this footage looks completely convincing because you don't have CGI yet and you can't fake it, um, uh, the characters have the discussion as to, well, if they even have one of these bombs, they could destroy Berlin. And so for them, that is sufficiently threatening to completely change their calculus for war.
0: There were so many different movies in our timeline that, that were released around 1962, 63, 64. Uh-huh. Movies like Doctor Strangelove, Failsafe, uh, uh-huh. tons of films about nuclear weapons. And it's kind of funny to think that they would think, oh, this is no way this could be faked. But there yeah. were all these movies. I mean, and they relied a lot on stock footage themselves. Yeah. Um, but it's just kind of funny that like the like... Just-
1: the, the show does try to solve that by... They have characters saying... This footage could not be faked, and this footage is clearly the Marshall Islands, so we're just meant to go with it. Right, right, right. Um, Which is fair enough. Reasons a plot. Um, But no, you're right. It's it's, it's not—none of the Nazi people, when they see this, dispute its authenticity, and they don't think about how did they do this open atmospheric testing without us even knowing they did it. Um, And not only is it an atomic weapon, it's a thermonuclear weapon that's better than anything we have.
0: If I would be willing to play devil's advocate here, I would say, one— you're right that they may not have been able to detect it because they we have the capability then to use the aerial surveillance and things like that. Mm. Maybe because the Germans thought, well, we're the only ones with nuclear weapons. Mm. We don't need to develop these intelligence capabilities. But it's still one of those things that you can't just test a thermonuclear bomb first. Mm. Like if you if Japan did that, if Japan yeah, just tested that. the reason why we did so many tests— in the Nevada test site in in the Pacific Ocean to get to the hydrogen bomb was we had to refine the exact configuration that would work to produce a fission reaction that would lead to a fusion reaction. Mm. Like, most of the tests that were involved uh, at that particular time were to develop that exact configuration. And Japan in this world just created it. It's unclear if th- maybe the Germans thought this was their first ever test, yeah, or if they thought that we missed dozens of tests. Yeah, That's what's kind of...
1: Yeah, it's, it's I mean, crazy. It's the universe, but so I think you could pick it apart, but at the same time, you could probably maybe compare it to Sputnik or true, true, uh, or the Soviet atomic and then thermonuclear test of before you stop and interrogate. Um, how did they do this? We thought they were so backward. This is meant to be years away. Your initial reaction is shock. Um, I, I remember reading a psychological paper which looked at how. How threatening a situation is and the psychological impact it has on you depends on how much you expect it. Hmm. So the act of in in World War Two, Germany dropped so many bombs on London as to flatten parts of it. But uh, the British carried on regardless. In World War One, some Zeppelins dropped some bombs very inaccurately and the public panicked. It's because the public didn't expect zeppelins dropping bombs in world war one they expected much worse in world war ii so you know the psychological impact of something isn't determined by the amount of force it's also by what your expectations are
0: and really so i think that's, universe, that's interesting
1: it's, it's their own sputnik moment it's we weren't expecting this maybe you would dispute you know they were meant to be years behind but your first reaction would actually be oh, dear, oh, dear, we better change all our plans. Mm. And indeed, the Nazis decide, most most of them decide not to go for war. Um,
0: and it's one of those things, you're right, they only needed a little bit of time. Essentially, this whole plan was to get the Chancellor out of the room
1: uh-huh.
0: for them not to decide to launch at that moment. And then uh-huh. John Smith brings his other dossier file, documents about why Hitler actually died.
1: And oh, yes, was he this, reveals he reveals the chancellor was actually behind hitler's assassination and we get another coup uh, It ends up with himmler in charge and that's apparently a good ending to season 2 oh, even though himmler is one of the most evil men in history
0: i know they make him look like like, like a grandfather type character yeah, he's, he's,
1: he's, he's like he's, he seems he seems nice you know he, he's he's like friendly and he's oh, think, he doesn't quite make jokes but he's in that room he's presented as being the reasonable one um, oh, it's funny because the show we also meet Heydrich at one point who is definitely oh, the worst evil one. and is shown as being evil but Himmler in real life is such a horrible figure that I do find the portrayal of him strange but I think it's for reasons of plot eh,
0: maybe season um, 3 will get into more stuff maybe yeah. he, he, he likes this situation because it gives him power and he would be able to essentially trade one bad person for another but before this takes place before this secondary coup is able to take place. There's a fun scene because it has to do with <laughs> nukes. Therefore, we have to have a, a nuclear football being involved here. So I, I'm calling this the nuclear foosball uh, yep. instead of nuclear football. So there's this quick scene where uh, the new chancellor, for some reason, I guess it's a quick turnaround. Usually when there's a new president that comes in because of a death or an assassination, it's like one of the first things you learn is here's how you oh. use the, the the nuclear football or, or More particularly, here's how you authorize a launch. Yeah. Because the football, you know, it has its dates back to the Eisenhower administration. It was more of a thing that was created after the Cuban Missile Crisis to stop a decapitation strike or to launch uh, or authorize a launch when the president was away from the White House. That's the thing that I think people constantly forget. The nuclear football is not the only thing that we use to authorize a launch. It could be launched with a, with a a telephone. It could be launched with a – mostly it would be in the situation room if it was at the White House. It's just a way – it's a communication device that is really good at authorize or authenticating the president and giving the order for someone else to actually push the buttons, turn the keys, yep. drop the bombs, all of that kind of stuff. But in this world, in this timeline, the nuclear foosball – is literally a launching device, it seems like. It's one of those uh, that they did. You see in a bunch of movies a big red button, and you push it, and then the missiles are in the air. That's how I see this. I I would love to, if you give me a little bit of a moment here, to kind of play through this, because I think this is kind of fun. Uh, So the nuclear football, the foosball, is a briefcase in this one. It's an actual briefcase, and you open it up, and there's two keys. Uh, I couldn't tell who, maybe you knew this, the other military guy who's explaining this that seems to have the other key it seems like that the, just maybe the, the, ma- the marshal or somebody, <laughs> but for some reason, so the one key is given to the chancellor and the other key apparently is given to the guy who's holding the football. So in, in, in our timeline, there's always some sort of rotating military leader who gets the highest level of clearance, uh, and is, is basically holding the football is always around where the president is within, you know, moments notice in case there's an incoming attack, they only have a few minutes to launch. That person is there. This person is apparently also given a key because we see later on that him that uh, Hoistman and this guy leave the room, go to his office, and then they both turn the key. I don't know why they need two keys, if it's just the guy who's holding the box has to authorize it. But for some reason, there's two keys. And in this thing, the instructions that are given by the military person, he's told, To order a strike, each preset target package has a 10-digit code, which you can find here. And he gives them the little, essentially, it's the PSYOP book. Um, the launch, the, the menu of different options. And then you set here to activate, turn the bolt, the keys, then you arm it. Then you have the secondary safeguard. Then you press this button. And I guess that's to launch everything. So what we see visually is a box that has lots of lights, like way too many light bulbs, (laughs) a lot of red led text, um, lots of Nazi symbolism, and what I thought looked like I couldn't get couldn't find the high resolution version of it, but it looks like the model number information on the bottom of a laptop that mm. says like the serial number and all that. That for some reason is in the middle, um, and there's also a couple dials to put in the launch code numbers. And here's what's fun: this suitcase has a corded phone with like a touchpad mm. in in the suitcase, which made me start to think about: is this a wireless device? Do you have to plug mm. it in? Is because 1962. Do they have cell phones? Do they have the ability to communicate things? Because now the, the suitcase has a bunch of configuration. Like there's an antenna that sticks out. I didn't see any sort of antenna. I don't know. I just couldn't figure out why there was a phone line attached to it if it's just to launch things. Uh. I don't know. I, I imagine because the whole idea behind the nuclear football is that it is portable. It's something you can take and launch in someone's backyard and not launching in like wherever the command center, this Dr. Strangelove place is. Um, so one, I thought it was silly that this thing had a cell, a phone. I don't know what that was supposed to be used for. And two, if they're in wherever this place is, apparently the Dr. Strangelove office is in this building and it's like right next door to the the chancellor's office, you would launch from there. You wouldn't use the football, but maybe the Germans do it differently than us. Then I also looked at the individual items and I tried to translate things. I don't speak German, uh, but there's... The two key slots have labels on top of them that say start one and start two. So when you turn those keys, it turns another light on. But you have to flip a switch that translates to activate or enable, which I guess is uh-huh. arm the weapon. And then you flip over a flip cover and there's another switch, which is like a secondary safeguard, you know, safety first. A couple of red lights come on, including one light that translates as standby and ready. Uh-huh. So clearly there's a sequence of things you need to do so you don't just... Accidentally, accidentally. El- elbow the button or something. <laughs> um, but here's where it gets kind of crazy. So there's a big red button that says start, S-T-A-R-T, which I thought was funny. It's like, why is that in English? But <laughs> there's a German word, start, der start, which means launch.
1: Oh. Um,
0: so, in, But in this device, though, you can't confuse the big red button that says start with the other things, which are the turnkeys that also say start on them. So I, I don't... don't really know that that. Seems to be a level of uh, complexity that you wouldn't want to introduce into this.
1: Yeah, uh, I was also watching it, and trying to figure out what it actually activates. So when he presses the button and goes through the sequence, yeah, um, obviously so it sort wouldn't be connected to the to any bombers because they're flown by individuals and now dropping some kind of either gravity bomb or air launched missile. Well, it'd be, it would, it it would be funny.
0: It would be funny if the bomber, like even if it's on the on the ground, it just drops the bomb. <laughs>
1: exactly. So maybe it's connected to all the ICBMs, so immediately the silo doors open and they all launch because they're on you know, 15-minute launch on warning posture. But they also said phase one of their plan would also be um, SLBMs so from submarines. So they immediately just pop to the surface and fire <laughs> no matter whether they give away their position. There's no timing. Sorry, the best part about this is, is that when the chancellor gets
0: arrested because they find out about this plot uh. that he did – he gets escorted out of the room. No one deactivates the suitcase (laughs) or takes it with them. They just leave to go do a speech in their giant dome structure. And I really hope like the cleaning crew didn't see it. Or some guy walks by and goes, "Huh, is this the room service button? And like pushes it and...
1: Close the lid and that presses the button and that's your the (laughs) weapons then. you can't help but pick it apart. And I was just thinking of the implications of the command and control in this world. So apparently the Nazis are so worried about an unauthorized use that they developed this really strong, so it's called negative control. So making sure Mm -hmm. and control is either positive control or negative control. Positive control ensures weapons are always used when they're needed and negative control prevents weapons from being used uh, when they're not wanted. So like an unauthorized use. You ensure negative control by building in protection. So the part of the Nazis are are so worried about negative control that they've consolidated everything into this one (laughs) suitcase that is following their chancellor around and he has to personally activate it which somehow gives everyone else the ability to to launch their weapons um but at the same time they have this dual key system but the keys are so close together that literally one person can turn them if they use both hands the whole point of a dual key system is you separate the keys so one guy can't decide to start world war three on his own in practice these systems were never great the uh, U.S. Thor missile stationed in Britain had a dual-key system, but they found out – they uh, uh, there was a British key and an American key, but the British found out they could uh, activate it not by stealing the key but by sticking a screwdriver in and <laughs> substituting that for the American key. So um, these systems have their problems anyway, but at least put them beyond arm's reach so one right. man can't – turn both keys otherwise why have two keys just have one i think it's not it's it's providing no physical protection
0: this is definitely a this is a nuclear terminology that everybody that watches movies
1: understands
0: Mm. and if there wasn't two keys people would be like aren't there normally two keys involved in this
1: yeah i I think you're right it's the vernacular of of the of films and our expectations built up across decades that we expect nuclear war to begin with a scene of two keys being turned and a big red (laughs) button being pushed whether or not that bears any resemblance to real life or has any practical purpose in universe, right? Doesn't matter. It's like we look at that briefcase, we see that scene, and we know what that means. What?
0: <laughs> well, one of one of my favorite things is you know, I'm not I I've never seen the nuclear football. I, the actually what it looks like is there aren't photos of the inside no. of what it looks like. It's only just on the outside. Um, but everything that I've read and I think people understand in the open source is there aren't a lot of buttons. It, it's basically it's a it's a phone.
1: To talk is it codes to... and codes kept in biscuits basically, and some means of communication.
0: right, so the biscuits, yeah, they're those so essentially it's like a credit card laminated credit card usually kept in the jacket pocket of the president. Mm-hmm. So that code but what that does is you know I'm speaking to someone who already knows this, but uh, it essentially those there's like ten codes and three of them are real and the president has to memorize basically whenever the codes are recycled, uh, which codes are the right ones. Those All those do, those codes aren't launch codes. They're just like, I'm the, hi, other person on the phone, Pentagon, National Command Authority. This is the president speaking. And then they say, really? Ch- prove it. And then you have these codes, and they have the codes too. And you go, oh, okay, thank you, sir. You are the president. What would you like us to do? And then you pull out your book and you say, uh, I would like uh, the filet mignon. I would like a <laughs> bottle of nice Shiraz and uh, nuclear war option 1746. And then they go, yes, sir, we'll bring all those things on the way. Um, and then they those orders are then released to either the submarine, the bomber, or the missile launch facilities. And then they run through another series of unblocking codes to make the missiles work. And those yeah. are also considered launch code. But those are codes kept within the silo. The president doesn't know what those codes are at all. Yeah. Um, they shouldn't. I mean, that's, that's not part of their job. So the idea of, like, turns and keys turning and flip- switches flipping and all that stuff— seemed to indicate to me that that's a, that's a launch sequence.
1: Yeah. I, I got the sense that when he presses this button, missiles are going to start flying uh, immediately. It, it's not a, it's not a system for proving his identity. Yeah. It is actually the the button you press to make the missiles go.
0: <laughs> I don't know what that was. It's it's fun. It definitely was a scene that I watched probably 30 times trying to do notes <laughs> for this. And the more and more I saw it, I'm like, this. why is there 16 light
1: bulbs on this? I Why just I just thought it was German over engineering. It's just you know, <laughs> it could have been simple. Um, you know, the British just used just used a phone. <laughs> ah, delightful. Right, no, the Germans <laughs> have this satellite-enabled magic briefcase.
0: All right, so let's. I think we covered all the nuke stuff mostly. So let's. So where we are left at the end of season two, if you're getting ready for season three, um, the Germans think that the Japanese have a hydrogen bomb and maybe can deliver it. There's a new leader now who is self-deterred a little bit more from wanting to start a new war. And also he realizes that the initial ideas of why we had to start a war today no longer apply.
1: It's not revenge for the murder of Hitler because Hitler was actually murdered by the guy they have in custody.
0: Exactly. So that's kind of where we are. Uh the trade minister is is still around and he's gonna to try to figure out what uh his next steps are gonna be dealing with his government, get knowing that there's an alternate vision of what the world could look like. Uh Juliana Crane, um she is hanging out with the with the man in the high castle and there's this great line about the man in the high castle says, I've seen every single version of the universe in this multiverse and every single one of them people are different uh sometimes the good guys are the bad guys and the bad guys are the good guys or different jobs and roles but you're always the same kind of person and uh. much like a an atomic you know structure with neutrons and protons circling the the nucleus you are the nucleus and people are all revolving around you so you're some sort of special you know dare i say constant uh. Chico and tries to figure out, oh, and then all of a sudden her sister is around still. Maybe she's from another world. Um, Joe Blake is arrested along with his father. Uh, Oben Gruppenheimer Smith, um, we haven't even gotten to the tragic story of his son. No, which is
1: too, too sad. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think that one, we'll just leave that out. But that's like, I think probably the best non nuke story yeah, yeah. in the entire part of the show. Um, yeah. And then the Resistance has been the Frank. We think maybe Frank and his Resistance friends are dead because they were there when a bomb detonated and killed the general who wanted to build the Japanese bomb. Uh, so we're really left in a precarious state. And it's one of those things, that's a lot like, I'm doing a lot of research now on one of our future episodes that we'll record on the Watchmen comic uh-huh. book series um, and in the movie and all that. And that ends, spoiler alert, with a very precarious piece based uh-huh. on a lie similar to yeah. this. And it ends with the hint that this lie which works to stop nuclear war is going to be discovered and then there's consequences of this so i think season two will be about a little bit how do you keep this lie up when the germans are going to start to be like all right so we think they have a hydrogen bomb These are the 10 things that we would know to look for to confirm whether or not they have it. And none of them are going to pop up. What does the trade minister do now? Does he go into the other world, grab a hydrogen bomb bomb. (laughs) and then bring it back and like is holding it. It's like, here you go. This this." is when
1: the show becomes fringe with people just hopping between universes (laughs) and just, Oh, I need that bit of technology. I'll bring that back. Uh,
0: Who knows where this is going to go, but that's that, that is where we are now. And uh, this had a lot more nuke things than I initially thought it would when I gave up on the show so i'm very happy that you instigated this episode <laughs> and pushed me to do this
1: well thank you for toughing through a show that wasn't gripping you from the start because you know it can be really tedious to watch a show if it isn't actually pulling you in
0: all right so let's uh we're done with the nuke stuff here let's play a couple games um people like the games so let's play if i think you've got one i've got one uh, one maybe we'll play it we'll play them out one of them will be on this episode the other will go on our youtube channel uh, so if you go to YouTube and you search "Supercritical Podcast," you'll hear the other game. Uh, I'll figure out which one works better. Your, yours worked better last time, so I think maybe that'll be the way <laughs> it does here. And then we'll if you oh, don't want to listen, short. <laughs> well, if you don't want to play, if you don't want to listen to the game, um, listeners, uh, you can just skip ahead to our plot discussion. Well, we'll just maybe talk about themes and why we like the show or didn't like the show. We'll do some ratings. We'll talk about maybe some recommendations and then close it out. Because this is a long episode. Um, I recognize people don't always like the long episodes, but I think this. This is worth it. This is a really cool discussion here. Shall we play a game? So let's get into the game. I will play mine first. Okay. Mine's a little bit more involved. Um, It's, it's still fairly short. So you know how this is like an alternate history story, and yep. they're all the rage these days. What other alternate history stories are there? Because one of my favorite things as a kid was our comic books and the What If storyline of the Marvel yeah. Universe. There's all these stories of, all right, well, what if Captain America was a bad guy? Or yeah. what if Wolverine did this instead of this? And I, I find that as a really fascinating storytelling device to like take certain things and change them up and see what the character's response are. Mm. So I looked and I did some research on different types of alternate stories. We're going to play a round of the classic game, Alternate History Channel. And I am going to give you a, a plot of a real book or story or video game. And I will give you three titles. And you're going to tell me what the actual title is or if it's two that I made up. So it's like one truth and and two lies kind of thing. So let's start off here. I've got 10 of these. And if you get more than half, I'll send you a a fun little prize. (laughs) All right. So the first one is, the United States experienced a communist revolution in 1917 and became a communist superpower while Russia did not. The three titles, back in the USSA, call me commie. Better Red Than Red, White, and Blue. Which of those are the correct title?
1: That's got to be the first one. Back in the USSA.
0: That is correct. Well done. That's a 1997 story. So all these descriptions I've I've just took straight from Wikipedia. uh, But some of these look kind of cool. So that's a 1997, I think, book. All right, second one. The atomic bomb resulted in a genetic preponderance of conjoined twins who eventually become a minority subculture. Is it you, me, and Marie Curie?
1: <laughs> Half-Life? Or Fusion? I'm going to go for the pun of Half-Life.
0: Well done, sir. Well done. Uh, that's two, well, two well in done a row. For
1: you, me and Dupree. That's...
0: <laughs> I, had, I had fun with that one. All right, number three. The British are defeated in the Battle of Dunkirk, allowing the Nazis to conquer Europe and then Africa. Is the title of this the Africa Reich, the Reich Strikes Back, or Dun
1: Dunkirk? I go for the first one, the Africa Reich.
0: <laughs> yeah, I couldn't come up with a good pun for that one. Uh, that is correct. That is a 2011 story, uh, which I think is fitting given the Dunkirk's uh, mm. Oscar run here. Um, all right, next one. Abraham Lincoln survives his assassination attempt and then two years later faces an impeachment trial. Is it Uncivil War, Death to Tyrants, or The Impeachment of Abraham Lincoln?
1: Oh, um, I'm going to stick with
0: puns. Uncivil War.
2: Sorry to hear that, Professor.
0: That was one I
1: created. It's just a
0: boring title of The Impeachment of Abraham Lincoln.
1: Yeah. Not even like
0: Abraham Lincoln Impeachment Hunter or something.
1: At least you can judge it, the book, by the cover. Exactly. It's quite literal. A
0: 2012 story here. All right, next one. The Cuban Missile Crisis leads to World War III. Twelve-year-old Scott and his family must squeeze into a small fallout shelter with six uninvited neighbors and somehow survive with enough food and water for the next two weeks. Is it give me shelter, fallout, or won't you be my nuclear neighbor?
1: (laughs) I'm going to go for Give Me Shelter. Sorry to hear
2: that,
0: Professor. <laughs> it is Fallout. Ooh. <laughs> and the simple title of Fallout, 2013. I actually read this story last year uh, after recommending it because I only read part of it a while ago. I recommended it, I think, on our episode for uh, Blast from the Past, that romantic mm. comedy yep. movie. I recommended it then and then actually finished reading it. That's It's a pretty good story. It's a children's like YA story. It, mm. it's, it's better, it goes actually back and forth. Between a child worried about the Cold War uh, leading to the Cuban Missile Crisis, leading to a nuclear attack, and then actually in the bunker. So it kind of goes back uh-huh. and forth. It's not bad. Okay. All right. Number six. The Soviet Union was able to win the Cold War and remake the entire world in its image. Is it Stalin world? To the victors go the spoils. Or the gladiator?
1: I can see this as a comic and it would be Stalin world.
2: Sorry
1: to hear
0: that, Professor. <laughs> it's for some reason called The Gladiator.
1: It has no resemblance to the plot as far as I can see.
0: Nothing at all. Uh, so now you're three and three. Oh, no. So you have to get some, some right here. Otherwise an, an, a nondescript, but I'm sure awesome prize uh, will, <laughs> will come your way. Alright. Number seven. The Napoleonic Wars are fought with an air force of dragons. Is it <laughs> the battle of fireloo glosefiu which is uh translates for uh ice and fire or is it his majesty's dragon
1: oh the last one
0: yeah i couldn't i tried to come up with a way to do of a song of ice and fire in french and i didn't yep. work out that well uh no. but that one is his majesty's <laughs> dragon it would probably be better if i could speak french all right number 8 diplomat benjamin Batholst. Arrives in a timeline where the British defeated the American rebels. Is it Redcoat Redemption? He walked around the horses? Or Long Live the King?
1: Uh, You know what? The middle one is so weird. I'm going to go with He walked around the horses. Excellent.
0: The problem with these that that's correct is because some of these are just such weird titles that I couldn't oh. like. My fun pun titles don't yep. they 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 stick out.
1: I think I think that was also an episode of the the much maligned but secretly brilliant show Sliders back in the nineties, which ah. I remember watching. The British wonder revolutionary. I like Sliders. Basically, America is just full of people going, "Oh yeah, sure what?" Oh yes. Sir, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is from nineteen forty-eight. Oh, okay, it's an old one too. All right, the last two. If you get one of these right, I think you win. The failure of the Trinity Test in June 1945 leads to an American invasion of Japan. Is it called Fizzle, The Bomb That Failed, or The Pacific Quagmire?
1: Oh, The Pacific Quagmire. Sorry to hear
0: that, Professor. It is called The Bomb That Failed. Ah. I thought The Pacific Quagmire was a good one. Um, All right, so you need to get this last one here, because I think you have five to four. If you get this last one, you got it. A racist colonel wants to change history by helping the Confederate States of America win the American Civil War. Is the title of this, from 1983, The South Will Rise Again, A Rebel in Time, or Civil War Redux? Oh, The
1: South Will Rise Again.
2: (laughs) Sorry, to
0: oh I'm sorry sir no it is a rebel in time Uh, (laughs) even full circle here the idea behind the man in the high castle the inspiration from it came from a civil war anti-history story I think it's like the Jubilee um, it's the story uh, Jubilee something or another but it's that same kind of idea gave an inspiration to Philip K. Dick to want to write this story fortunately that one was your downfall so um, you won a prize last time this (laughs)
2: <laughs> the only winning move is not
0: that's great all right so let's uh let's wrap this up we've been going long um let's do our parking lot movie discussion and this is if this was a movie we watch the in the theater and before we go our separate ways we sit in the parking lot and and say what we like and didn't like and, and wax poetic on it i think the big one here is i think we could talk about what we overall thought about the story and maybe see if we can come to some sort of a common agreement here. I also think it would be interesting as we talk about this, the advantages and disadvantages of using alternate history uh, in terms of storytelling. Because I think it's clearly it's it's a very popular device. But why? Why does this keep coming yeah. up? And maybe not only why it's good, but what are the disadvantages? So I don't know. That's a big question. But maybe uh, you want to present your case for why this this show is is maybe we'll do the rating system right now too i think that would be good that can lead to why we're discussing discussing mm. this stuff so now i'm combining two things but our rating system we always like to rate my consistent kind of one to five rating but also tailor it so that it is a uh, super critical exact discussion of what we're talking about so I think for this one, it'd be good to do one out of five pairs of knockoff Abraham Lincoln cufflinks. Because in the show, <laughs> they make a lot of forged uh, Americana properties, and that's what the Japanese are really wanting to have. And they have this fun storyline of Abraham Lincoln's cufflinks and w- that he wore on the night of his assassination. Because I think one pair would be a nice keepsake, historic-wise, but if you have five, that's pretty good because you can sell the rest of them for a nice profit. Mm-hmm. What would you say you would rate this show?
1: I think it's... Across both seasons, and I think it's slightly uneven between the two. I think it's three out of five for me. Hmm. What about yourself?
0: When I first started watching this when I quit, I would say 2.5. Like, good stuff, oh. but not enough to draw me. I think you convinced me here to go a little closer to three, like 2. hmm. 2.75. Like, there's a lot of great stuff in this show. Production design, characters, this really weirdly intricate nuke plot where nukes were only a small part of the book. But they really mm. decided to, to draw this out quite well. And all the character moments and things that we haven't really talked about are great. But yeah. they're, to me, I love movies that are slow and deliberate and go into great detail. Blade Runner 2049 was my favorite movie of 2017. And that mm. movie got a lot of criticism for being slow and drawn out. But I think we've done well. It's one of the best types of storytelling. But it only works if kind of everything is firing on all cylinders. Yeah, And every time I watched a, a Joe Blake episode or a, a scene with the Resistance, I just was constantly saying, nothing's happening in this episode. And the character stories aren't as good as other character stories that are happening. Yeah, And that's ultimately why we said, my wife and I, let's go watch another show. Instead of yeah. kind of putting
1: us through the slog. So there's definitely a problem if you re- realize you're wishing you were spending time with another character than yeah. the one you're watching. And for me, I find that a lot with with Joe's character, again, not through the fault of the actor, I don't think, but just the reasons of plot and the resistance storyline, which you know from episode two where it's going, and it doesn't resolve itself until the last episode of the second season.
0: That's the problem. Things are are predictable. Yeah.
1: yeah. But around that, I find you have some really compelling characters, definitely in – so I think Smith is the breakout star – Um, also supported by just some really good acting which makes him really compelling and interesting even if you're never really on his side because you can't be because of who he is but you also don't want him to fail in a weird way especially Mm. when he's on the right side of trying to stop a war.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the storyline with his son which Mm. I I think we can...
1: Tragic beyond belief.
0: His son turns out who is a a boy scout for Nazi philosophy. Mm. Like he is what you would envision a perfect child of this regime to be that would lead into the future, but then it turns out he has a version of muscular dystrophy, where he will eventually get hurt. And he won't—he won't kill him immediately, but it will make him essentially disabled. Mm-hmm. And in this universe, gosh, in this universe, in real life, Nazi philosophy, that's what's called a useless eater. It's someone who should be destroyed killed they should give themselves up for euthanasia and you should destroy anyone with handicaps and just weave that out of the genetic line but then right like the 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 mother and the father even though that's against nazi rule Uh. they decide to keep it hidden Uh. that his son the illness has this and even from his own son and also they had this interesting plot of well he was going to be kidnapped in south america and live with a bunch of jewish refugees and he'll be able to survive at least in some version of life. Son finds out about this and turns himself in to, yeah. to be euthanized because of the model of how great his father was after solving and and bringing out the coup plot into uh, national attention. He gets like praised on TV in front of everybody, and the son is inspired to essentially turn himself in.
1: Yes, yeah, so the son is presented as his old Smith's family as his great all-american ideal and if it wasn't for the fact that it was a nazi reich they would be patriotic americans with apple pie the uh helen would be she would have a job or she would be in charge of like the local residence association you see all her friends look up to her right they have the perfect house they do their version of the fourth of july thing but for va day where they have <laughs> the neighbors around and they are in every sense the at least outwardly, the perfect family and fitting the Nazi ideal as well. Of you know, they have three children, a boy, a boy and two girls. You see Helen with a medal, which real life Nazi mothers were given if they produced lots of children and were good homemakers. You can imagine in a, in a slightly different ver- or any other version of history, this would be a happy, healthy family. Yeah, this uh, the discovery of uh, their son having this illness creates this really interesting tension and, and quandary for them You know, it has been clearly committed Nazis and they have done a lot to earn these accolades in their position. Even if we don't see it, we know they have done horrible, horrible things. The, you know, the, those values are put against the, the, the normal human value of wanting to protect your own child. And so it does create this really interesting uh, and I think one of the most relatable stories in the entire program of just two parents, the incredible steps they'll go through to protect their son. But then the tragedy of they've raised their son so well.
2: Yeah.
1: That you know, in America he'd be saying the Pledge of Allegiance and would be, as you say, a Boy Scout. But in this version, he's gone to the Hitler youth and he has so believed in this state that now he doesn't want him that he turns himself in. And it's just and it's how season two ends, and it's such a gut punch. Yeah. But it's so it's so dramatically effective. And that's again, it's a slow build. Yeah, um that that plot line takes two seasons to to resolve itself, but oof, oh, oof. Oh. It's a tough
0: one. <laughs> and this this is where I think the show both benefits from a uh, binge-watching format. Oh. Like, all the episodes are released at the exact same time. So oh. shows that are slow builds, you can watch, you know, uh, this is a slow build, but I can immediately watch the next episode. It doesn't hurt as much. Like Imagine what it was like to watch Lost. A lot of what I watched for Lost was just binging. Oh. And then near oh. the end, I kind of did the week-to-week thing. And I didn't enjoy the week to week thing as much because of the. It was all about this the mystery I thought was interesting, but it wasn't as good as the character stuff that I thought yeah. was good. I think this show would be even worse if for me if it was a week to week thing. I would not watch the show week to week. No, I,
1: I mean I watched one episode a night with my original run, and that was a good way to consume it. And because it is such a serialized story. Uh, it lends itself to that. I think you know the almost right. the episode t- endings and titles are almost arbitrary. It's one continuous story, in the same way anyone who's watching Star Trek Discovery, it's doing the exact same thing. Of it's designed to be consumed as one piece across like a week rather than. I think week to week it would be a much more frustrating show, and I I do recognise the weaknesses and there are some plots that don't go anywhere or just take way too long. But around it, I think it's really interesting characters and so much good production design yeah
2: such good and, production and, design
1: and all the nuclear elements i really appreciate not just their authenticity but that it uses sci-fi as sci-fi should be done which is to ask moral questions it isn't so explicit it doesn't beat you over the head with saying are we any better we are also threatening nuclear war we don't have organized state genocide but a nuclear war would be organized state genocide of a different form hmm. so it. i mean you can you can just watch it on the surface. Just watch it in terms of plot and enjoy it for no more than that. Or I think you can go deeper, and the show does ask some of those deeper questions, which I think is what good sci-fi should do. It should make you re-examine your own world. Take a ridiculous concept like the multiverse and an at nuclear victory in World War Two, and and do something with it. Don't don't just um, don't don't just think that is enough to justify the show's existence. I just wish I could be more interested in things like, <laughs> you know, Joe question as to who he is you know get to the answer quicker joe and then do something interesting we can't have two seasons of you going who am i
0: yeah wait until the last two episodes of the second season yeah um i think this show would benefit much more if it followed the british television formats of eight episodes yeah um i think shows like the fall uh my favorite comedy for a long time was peep show like these shows are great when they're Eight episodes, um, almost like the Sherlock format in a weird way, of we'll do longer episodes but fewer number. I think this would be a better show if it was eight episodes. You wouldn't have to stretch things out as much. Um, You still have the time for all the character development. You have to make more strategic choices about what things you want to do. And I think the season two for me suffered a little bit. People know about the show. They had maybe – if they followed the behind the scenes – it had a production problems. Yeah. In season two, they never rehired their showrunner from season you know, one. All the
1: writing staff, I noticed, are different, yeah. bar bar the executive producer who writes one or two.
0: So every episode seems very different than the yeah. other ones. That's why I think storylines are almost like the book and how Philip K. Dick, an, an ancient Chinese tradition of using sticks or coins mm. to to basically divine questions and answer things like, you know, this is very terrible way of describing it but essentially like a magic eight ball of answering questions it was literally
1: random which is what i find infuriating as a reader (laughs) and if you
0: don't if you don't have a showrunner you kind of almost end up having that i don't know the extent of that but if you don't have someone that ties the stories together in a more cohesive way you get these things where you have one great episode and then a couple episodes afterwards that are you know have qualities that are good but don't really come together and i think to bring this back to the, the anti history, reverse history, or yeah. alternate history type stuff, um, I would like to envision a world where this show existed with eight episodes, with one showrunner. Mm. Everything is a little bit tighter, but still had the same production design. Like, that's the multiverse I would like to jump into, watch this show, bring it back, and then show it on television. <laughs> but in terms of like the other question I had, which I think is, I would love to talk about is the the maybe the disadvantages of using anti history stories is the premise I think sometimes can wear thin over a long period of time. If you're constantly saying, look, this is America, but different. You can explore different aspects of that, but eventually you're going to be like, okay, I get it. America would be awful if it was run by, uh, you know, Japanese imperialists and Nazis. Like, I get it. Let's go on to the next step to that point. And I think sometimes this show plays too much with, hey, isn't this crazy? Wouldn't this be weird if this happened? And it removes itself from the great story that it has, which is this is not so different. It's just what would happen. Anyone would turn into this kind of a person. Mm-hmm. John Smith is everyone, unless you're this amazing person like Juliana Crane who won't adapt, who won't just yeah. kind of how easily we can slip into fascism. I think the show, that part of the show is great, but sometimes the anti history tropes are, are too much of a crutch.
1: I think that's fair. And I think some of the bits that work best are when it makes you think about, oh, what would I do in that situation? Or you see how society adapts and how normal institutions and structures, we like to think we will fight oppression and resistance, and we will resist at all costs. But actually, society very quickly accommodates this new order, horrible aspects in society are let loose. So I mean, there was a British and a German Nazi party um, on the eve of World War II. There's a nice bridge of the production design, or J- JFK Airport isn't, of course, called JFK. It's named, I can't remember the name, but it's named after the leader of the uh, American Nazi party, um, hmm. who was a real person. I think there. Are, it does make you explore questions that real societies went through when they were genuinely occupied by Nazi Germany or any other occupying power. Who will collaborate? Why will they do so? Will it be just self-preservation? How will society society adapt and I think you can take that to a full extent of asking yourself what would I do in these kinds of situations but after two seasons I think it's kind of done that now and I don't know where it goes in series three uh, the series two finale kind of felt like well we don't know if we're coming back for series
2: hmm. for series
1: three this could end uh, this could this could be a show finale not just leading into the next bit I sh- I think they've done the premise well and they had some really good questions but but now I don't know what what they really do and if it's just about as you say, this world, but a bit different. That gets old really quick. I don't know. I will watch the next yeah. season, but I wonder if it's going to now get super sci-fi and uh, fully mm. multiverse.
0: So I will say that this episode um, of this podcast has made me at least interested. You've convinced me to watch season three. <laughs> so I will, okay. I will start it. I may, I may be quick to turn the key and launch the eject button. On it, But I will give this a shot. So I appreciate the the recommendation to keep looking at this and and check it out. So I'm glad also that you enjoyed it. Because I I recognize that there's good things in this show. And I'm not saying that it's garbage. You know, it's not like other shows that I've watched. And I said, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. I would recommend it. And just didn't click for me, but I can see it hopefully clicking in season series three. I would say if you enjoyed this, as I'm talking to the listener now, if you enjoyed this conversation... Uh, let's do some recommendations. Do you have some? Uh-huh. Uh, great. I, I have two real quick ones. Um, we already talked about it. The Wolfenstein video games are a real f- fun treat, especially the the last three rebooted modern games um, are a lot of fun playing in this world. And, and weirdly, it's a it's a, at its core is a dumb shooter game, but the story is so f- much of a fun action, almost like watching an action movie, uh, that I think it plays out very well, and I recommend it to anyone who likes video games. Um, it's surprisingly good. Every time I play one of these, I continue to go, this is surprisingly good, especially in the last one where you actually end up going to parts of America where it turns out in Nazi-occupied America, the KKK are flourishing and are now basically like running things in the South. The Man Castle really doesn't get into race politics a lot in the United States. And I think um, season three, if it doesn't deal with those questions, I might be a little disappointed. And I hope that it will. And the second thing I'll recommend is... A comic book, Superman, Red Son, S-O-N, from 2003. It's a great alternate history tale of Superman. So I was watching in preparation for maybe doing a podcast on Superman because uh, Superman 4 deals with some nuke stuff quite a lot. Uh, I was sitting there and I was thinking, it's really convenient that Superman landed in, on American soil mm. and didn't land on British soil or, or Russian soil or German soil or anything like that. Uh, and I said, that's that's pretty convenient for us uh, as an American. I think I tweeted out or Facebook does like, this is a cool concept, right? And immediately someone said, hey, idiot, there's a whole comic book series about this. So I, I went and I looked at it and I, I bought it and I read it. And it's it's very, very good. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across it. Yeah, but it's, I've read it. It's, it it's is good. good. It's it, really it, good.
1: It does something good with the premise uh, other than just. What if he was a communist?
0: He landed in a uh, essentially a, a commune, collective farm yep. instead of Kansas, and it it does a really good job of switching characters. Like, what would that world do for Superman when he now essentially is used by the state to advance communist interests? And he's he's a brilliant guy, so he's able to advance technology. Lex Luthor is now the president of like the United States, is trying to counter this because it's an anti history story. It allows you to explore character motivations by looking at them from different angles. So mm. I think that's what I would recommend for anyone, even if you kind of have a little bit of an idea what Superman is, I'd recommend it. And I wish they would do those movies. I would. Sh- I want a Red yeah. Sun movie instead of another. People
1: have, people have been petitioning for that one for a while. <laughs> ins-
0: instead of another Justice League movie, do Red yeah. Sun. Do it right. It would be great. It's one of those yeah. things people are taking risk now. With yeah. uh, you have Logan and you have Deadpool. Logan essentially is an, an anti-history story in its own. It doesn't necessarily follow the storyline of the other movies. It's kind of its own standalone. Do a Red Sun movie, I'll give you some money. <laughs> All right, what do you got? What do you got for us, Tim?
1: Okay, um, for my part, po- so I've just to pick up on a couple of things that I mentioned, but didn't really go into as much detail. So uh, first is a book called "The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy" by Lawrence Friedman. So I talked a bit about um, PSYOP, uh, the nature of the United States and native war plans in the 1960s. That is so much just the tiniest little tip of the iceberg.
2: Hmm.
1: And I think you know, watching this show, uh, some of the themes raised, it does make you consider the idea of nuclear warfare, the morality of it, the practicality of it, what are the actual implications of fighting a war with nuclear weapons. And uh, this book, it's a big book, it's quite thick. Um, but it is the best single volume I think, uh, out there in terms of summarizing how his thoughts about nuclear weapons have changed across the decades. I don't think there's anyone more knowledgeable than Lawrence Friedman. I will declare an organizational interest in that. He was head of war studies at my university for a very long time. Um, but it's a really great book. And so if you're in any way interested about the actual strategy of using nuclear weapons, uh, I think it's the best uh, single volume that uh, anyone could pick up. Second thing, something else we talked, we touched on briefly. So you mentioned when German nuclear scientists were captured after the war and were debriefed. So this was an operation called Operation Epsilon, where, as, as we mentioned, uh, the scientists were put up together in a house that was completely full of microphones by British <laughs> intelligence. Uh, basically, uh, British intelligence listened in on the conversations to figure out how close Germany had been to a bomb. Uh, interestingly, the transcripts of those discussions are available. Um, I think all the full ones are available in the book, but there's a, kind of a shortened version that can be found online, which is really interesting because it does—it's uh, a verbatim account of of how the different scientists reacted to news of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and how they assessed their own program. And if you're anyway interested in the real life state of uh, German effort to build a nuclear bomb, it's a quite a nice, simple thing to read, quite quick. Um, interestingly, it was made into a play in 2013 called Operation Epsilon, but I couldn't find a copy of that online anywhere. Um, I think it might have just been performed for a festival. Oh, interesting. But the actual transcripts themselves are available. So if you basically just go Google um, Operation Epsilon transcripts, it should be the first result. And the final thing, just to end on something a bit lighter, this show deals with the idea of obviously Nazis in America... We are kind of asked to get behind some characters who are unspeakably evil, unquestionably evil.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There is a very good three-minute comedy sketch by a British duo called Mitchell and Webb. Um, I mentioned peep show. Are... peep
0: show earlier. That's their yep. show, yeah.
1: Exactly. Where they... So they are two. It's, um, it's from a sketch comedy program. It's about uh, – <laughs> this particular clip is about two SS officers uh, realizing they might be on the wrong side of history. So if you just go on YouTube and search for Mitchell and Webb, Mitchell with two L's, Webb with two B's, uh, are we the baddies? <laughs> it is it is one of the funniest bits of um, clip show comedy I've ever seen, but I also found it impossible to get out of my head. When I was watching <laughs> Man in the High Castle*, all the way through, in the back of my head, this this sketches. I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's very worth a watch. Um, especially watch this watch this clip and then think about Open uh, Group and Fura Smith. And I, I, I think.
0: our helmets have skulls on them
1: <laughs> exactly
2: exactly <laughs> so many skulls <laughs> it's, it's really, oh that's uh, a good one
0: i'm glad you recommended yeah. that that's great uh well thanks very much tim for for skyping over here um it, we went we went very long but i think uh people are going to enjoy this one they,
1: it's two seasons of sh- so it's what 20 hours of
0: nuclear content um, um, we condensed it for them
1: yeah, Whereas yeah. threads, we exaggerated and ballooned. But <laughs> I just want to say thank you for having me on. It was a, it was a really nice chance to get to um, chat about actual nuclear history and how it's kind of filtered out into the popular uh, consciousness of nuclear weapons. So thank you for that.
0: No problem. Uh, anytime. Uh, we'll see you. Maybe uh, my wife and I are going to London in the next couple of weeks, and maybe if you happen to also be in town at that point, we'll, we'll grab a beer and uh, my wife will get annoyed about how we talk about nuke stuff in person. Uh, Not just over Skype for several hours.
1: Awesome. That sounds good.
0: And if you liked what you heard from Tim Collins, be sure to check him out on Twitter at war and cake. W-A-R-A-N-D-C-A-K-E at war and cake. Check him out on Twitter. He's great. Thanks for listening to another episode of the super critical podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, There are a couple ways you can contact the show. As always, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast is our Facebook page. We're on Twitter at nuclearpodcast and email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed the program, hey, we'd appreciate it if you went on iTunes or wherever you listened and left us a five-star review. This helps to grow the show. Plus, we really like to hear what people think uh, about the program, what they like, what they don't like. And that's a pretty good way of doing it and keeping us honest. Until next time... This has been Tim Westmeyer and Tim Collins. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.